I was just feeling out to see whether you're making a legit mistake. Or trolling and use trolling. I am a trolling. Are you guys using your AirPods anymore? I, I still am. I am not. Uh, Tiff uses them more than I do uh, now because... Did the, you get one pair or two pair? I got one pair, which is two AirPods. Okay. Uh, but yes, <laughs> it... Uh, you I, got three wait, AirPods. Yeah. Wait, how many, how many ear holes can you fill with the AirPods that are in the house? Two. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, so you have a single pair, like you said. Okay, yes. And Tiff is using them more than you. Yeah, she uses them actually often with the Apple TV. Like when I'm podcasting, she can really? watch TV. On, yeah, it's, it isn't as nice as using it with other stuff, but it does work. Um, and there's a couple of niceties. Like when, you're, when, you, when you use the volume up and down on the Apple TV remote with AirPods connected, it does the volume to them instead of like your speakers. So it doesn't do like the, the auto pairing thing the way it does on iOS devices. But once you have it paired, it works nicely. So how does that, I'm not trying to be funny, how does that work then? Do you have to like go into settings in the Apple TV and, mm-hmm. and say connect to the AirPods every single time? Um, I, don't, I forget if we do it every single time. I, I think it was just the first time. I don't know. Usually she just does it. Uh, I think once they're paired. As long as you don't pair them with something else though, right? That's the issue. And, and so we've actually, I, I've actually seen this a number of times. Like I was doing, I was trying to do testing between like the phone, the TV, iPad, watch, a Mac, like, you know, testing all these different things. And I found that AirPods are a little bit frustrating in trying to share between different devices and having it not quite always do what you want. Um, Like, even though the old way of doing Bluetooth, where you just have to, like, unpair from one device and pair to something else, that's also terrible. Uh, But the, the way AirPods do it is not quite flawless. Um, but how do they do it that's my question because i have used my airpods with my phone and my ipad right those are two two devices yeah uh is something supposed to happen other than me going to settings and tapping bluetooth and tapping airpods because that's what i've been doing my favorite thing is occasionally i'll put in a single airpod and i'll be in like the bedroom and i'm listening to a podcast or something like that and then i'll put in so like five or ten minutes later i'll put in another the the other airpod and it will go to connect and for whatever reason it will semi-consistently connect to the imac which is in the next room over in the office and so i have one airpod connected to my phone and one connected to my imac and so i'll double tap like the the one connected to the imac which i still haven't changed to do play pause so i'll hear siri out of one ear and then like whatever podcast i'm listening to out of the other ear it's it's actually quite funny and and i could see how that would be really frustrating to someone who isn't like a developer perhaps or who doesn't think about how difficult it is to implement all this but to me i just find it to be hysterical yeah i still get some weird audio sync problems sometimes but overall they're still they're still winning just because i guess my hatred of cords and snags has, has amen brother else. I, I find mm-hmm. it very frustrating that i can't change volume and i have all these crazy schemes on how to adjust the volume by like reaching into my pocket and feeling for which side of the phone is face up so i know whether i have to reach for the side with the power button or, or the <laughs> the volume thing like wait, especially wait, wait, with like gloves wait, wait. Slow on down. and stuff like that S- slow down wait, are you talking pant pocket or jacket pocket jacket oh okay uh, then i uh, then i yeah. i like, you know, like my wearing winter jacket and you, and you you know reach around there to change the thing or like when i do it in the kitchen like i said i don't even put the phone in the kitchen the phone is in the dining room uh so if i want to change the volume i have to like take a few steps into the other room and on the little sideboard thing hit the volume up or down but i'm living with it and apparently you know proofs in the pudding i'm people hate it when i say that because that's not correct but deal with it you know what i mean um 
that I, I'm I'm now using them despite the fact that uh, double tapping my ear is uncomfortable, and despite the fact that double tapping works weirdly inconsistently. Some people have suggested the triple tap to try to you know uh, have a mulligan in there if one of them doesn't register <laughs> sometimes i blame overcast and or slash ios for taking overcast out of memory so that it has to launch again before it can start playing and then i question whether it uh it registered my taps and it doesn't have just hasn't started playing yet sometimes it's so far out of memory that it starts playing music despite the last thing the fact that the last thing i was listening to was a podcast very confusing but anyway uh all that said, I'm still using them instead of my wired ones. The only place I've used my wired ones recently was uh, watching my iPad uh, in a case where my AirPods were downstairs. And it's like, well, I've got the wired headphones here, and I'm not going anywhere when I'm just watching something on my iPad on, on my bed or something. I mean, like, the wireless I'm totally sold on. And, and as I mentioned earlier, like, I love the idea of the AirPods because of just how incredibly small and pocketable they are. Uh, they don't fit me comfortably and they don't really work for my life as a result and so that's why i'm not really using them and why i typically use them more than i am uh but that being said all those limitations about what you can and can't easily control from them like volume and play pause being finicky and stuff like that when i switch back to my beloved old sennheiser px 210 bt when it has its giant you know th- this little like you know on-ear bluetooth set that i've had for a couple years now uh that i walk my dog every day with uh and it just has these big plastic buttons on the right ear cup and i can play pause volume up and down seek back seek forward next track previous track all with these five buttons on the right ear cup and it is just so convenient and every time i try other headphones for a little while to review them or to talk about them on the show or whatever else whenever i go back to my crappy little sennheiser bluetooth headphones I am so happy with the amount of control and convenience that I have for them, even though they sound like crap and they're pretty ugly and they are, you know, still like over the head headphones, even though they're, they're compact ones. Um, so they don't fit in any pocket, really. They, they'll fit in jacket pockets, but not in, not in like a pants pocket. And, and it is just so nice to have those. And, and I, it, I've tried now. I, I still haven't done a review. I keep meaning to maybe do video reviews and I keep putting that off because it turns out video is a lot of work. But uh, I, I've tried now many high-end Bluetooth headphones, including the AirPods, but also including like all like the the four hundred dollar crazy ones from like B and O and B and W and Bose and all these all these other uh, headphone companies. And the convenience of my relatively cheap Bluetooth headphones that just have big plastic buttons on the side cannot be beat like it is they are so convenient for everyday use that's why i use them for podcasts like and i would never recommend them for music because they sound like they sound like like trash they they just have the worst sound for music ever but for podcasts it's totally fine and oh man it's just so nice having those physical controls right on the ear i can operate it with gloves on i don't have to use any voice assistance they work every single time like it's just reliable physical controls and they're not sexy and they're not cool but they work and it's really hard to beat that for me. Yeah, if only there was a device you could, like, I don't know, strap to your body somehow that would give you all of those physical controls and also let you, like, get a text message and also let you reply to a text message and also let you get other notifications. Wouldn't that be awesome? No, anyway, I, let's do no, some actually, follow-up. I remember, I, I said that it works every time. 
the the ear cup mm. buttons work every time, mm-hmm. not eighty percent of the time. And I can use them with gloves on. And yeah, speaking of that, I keep forgetting to try that. That was suggested so long ago, and it still hasn't occurred to me to try. That. I should give that a try. Although I, I really try what using the watch. Okay. Yeah, to, as as an example of like having a physical volume control is easier than reaching into my pocket and, and finding my phone's volume button and stuff like that. Truth be told, finding the volume button is probably easier, but this is a solvable problem. It's just that you don't want to solve it. You don't want it to be solved the way it has been solved. Sounds like me and cars. Let's do some follow-up. There's actually a solution. I already have it. It was really cheap a few years ago, and it works perfectly every time. Uh, And and the, the newfangled solution is both something like four times the price and worse. So, no, this actually is a case where the old solution was totally fine. And the good thing is, like, this is this is one of those areas where, like, you know, as you, Casey, have been an advocate of for so long, cheap Bluetooth headphones are plentiful these days. Tons of people make cheap Bluetooth headphones. And yep. they're largely pretty decent. They're not good, but they're decent. And, and for their price, they're usually fairly reasonable. Uh, and these headphones were, at the time I bought them, kind of expensive at something like a hundred dollars or a hundred and ten dollars um they're not worth more than that if you see them for sale don't don't pay more than that uh but they're not even worth that really these days however that you know these are this is like a five-year-old pair of headphones this is one of the areas where like the higher end headphone the higher end wireless headphones are nicer in certain ways they are possibly more portable like airpods they are better sounding like some of the high-end ones from like b&o and stuff they are you know better noise cancellation and maybe more comfortable because they're larger on-ear things however for practicality of just like wireless wearing them while walking or running or around the house doing stuff like john cooking the cheap ones with plastic buttons on them are actually better for almost all purposes for that kind of use than the high-end expensive ones. I mostly agree with you. If you ever need to flip between devices, then the AirPods or anything really with a W1 chip start to make a lot more sense. But if you are consistent with one machine, for example, my $25 Bluetooth headphones I bought literally five years ago, I believe, that are still kicking. I just don't use them because of my AirPods. Um, I only ever use those with my work, my work computer, and it was great. It was it, the, the sound was acceptable, and they had buttons on the side if I really needed them, although I had the you know keyboard right in front of me. But anyway, uh, yeah, they, they work just fine. And I do agree with you. You know, I, I freaking love my AirPods, but nonetheless. If you don't feel like spending $160 on a set of little earbuds, you can easily spend between 20 and 100 and get something that's nearly as good as long as you're not switching between devices frequently. As long as you don't mind a giant thing. Like, I would never trade my AirPods. I would, I would go back to wired earbuds before I would go to a big thing that goes over my head with a big band and puts two big squishy circles on my ears. Like, I, I'm, I'm, I want the buds. That's what I want. And so wired or wireless, those are my choices. And then... A distant third would be okay. If I can't have any kind of earbud, then I guess I'll go an over-ear thing. Fair enough. All right. Let's uh, start the show and do some <laughs> follow-up. Uh, John, why don't you tell me about uh, phone contracts and uh, other ways that you can make people buy iPhones? Yeah, this is much more interesting. Thanks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was last week, uh, we talking about the different tractors that make people... Uh, feel like they need to get a new device on a on a faster schedule than people apparently and or supposedly get new ipads and i I was bringing up the idea that phones get dropped and break more often than ipads just by their nature uh so that could be one thing that will make people turn them over 
a couple of people uh, wrote in to bring up the idea of contracts, which are less prevalent now than they used to be in the U.S. It used to be that the phone was like, oh, it's, you know, $200 for this phone uh, on a two-year contract, blah, blah, blah. And they were just typical money-hiding schemes where, you know, human nature makes you not see the upfront cost and you don't do the multiplication in your head, so it seems like a cheaper deal. These days... It seems to me, so as someone who does not buy a new phone that often, that the shift is more towards. You've bought a new phone exactly once. Yeah. Well, no. You know, I've. I. Yeah, I suppose I bought my track phones too. Um, <laughs> oh, that uh, the, the move is away from contracts and more towards buying them up front unlocked. I don't know if that's a just an iPhone thing or just a my personal experience thing, but either way. Uh, historically, that has been a big motivator to get people to buy a new phone every few years because it seems like a good deal because they hide all the costs from you in a way that makes your your silly, fallible brain feel like you're not spending the money that you are spending. Now, wait, um, can we then, pause here for a moment? Am I supposed to be paying less on my cell phone bill now that I buy my phones outright because I'm not? No, you, you shouldn't be. But, uh, but, there, but it, that's but not it true. Is, well, it depends on how bad of a deal you got, but the the strange thing about the deals now is that they psychologically seem more expensive. No, like mine just is more expensive. Like like so I have AT&T and I started buying my phones outright and not taking their subsidies anymore and the plans are all still the same prices and I like I'm not I'm just spending more money now. No, you should be spending you should be spending a little bit less. I'm logging into AT&T right now, but what happens is the plans cost the same. However, they give you a very peculiarly, peculiar named uh, discount once you're no longer subsidizing a phone. And it's going to take me like three hours to figure out where in my bill this is listed. Yeah, they did. They, I remember hearing the same thing from my wife who wrangles the, the phone contracts that sometimes you have to call them to remind them to give you the better deal once you're off contract and then that deal gets... I discount don't know. discount for access, which is t- on the main line, $25 <laughs> off your total cost. What a great Because name. discount for access, to- actually it's on both lines, it's $25 off because when i think discount for access i think this is offsetting the subsidy cost don't you (laughs) that's fantastic yeah but anyways it is an interesting change that they're getting brave enough to reveal the price in a way that will register with consumers brains in the way that uh you know it's much scarier than the old way of like oh every new iphone is two hundred dollars now every new iphone is eight hundred dollars and you're like whoa eight hundred dollars it's it's like you just didn't do the math before um, so, and the other factor that people were going to talk about for getting new phones that's going to make you get a new phone before you would get a new iPad or, or, or even a new, you know, laptop is battery life, which you think wouldn't make a difference because iPads and laptops have batteries too, but phones batteries are really, really small and they're much closer to the ragged edge of acceptable in terms of battery life. So when the tiny little battery that probably is subjected to much harsher environmental conditions than your iPad or your laptop in terms of putting it in pockets or maybe leaving it in cars and stuff like that. Like I feel like in the same way of dropping the phone goes everywhere with you. So there's more variability, even just being in your outside jacket pocket during the winter, which I'm guilty of. I mean, when I'm shoveling snow, I have my phone in my jacket pocket. That can't be good for the battery to deal with those temperatures. Anyway, when the phone battery starts to go South, uh, it's a bad scene. You can deal with a many years old iPad battery because then it drops from 10 hours to five. But because of the way we use iPads, that's okay. But if your phone drops from making it until 6 p.m. into making it to only 4 p.m., 
that's a no-go and you're going to be like, oh, I need a new phone because my battery sucks. So more hardware-based reasons that people want new phones sooner than they want new iPads. Also, there's the um, Apple whatever upgrade program. I forget what it's called now, but I, th- I feel like several like normal people that I know have started doing that. What is that called? Is it just upgrade iPhone upgrade program? Um, but anyway, uh, I feel like that's, uh, yes, iPhone upgrade program and that, and there are equivalents with each carrier that are roughly the same money. So I feel like that's, what's going on is it's, you're sort of kind of leasing your phone now. I mean, honestly, this, this is really a better system. Uh, I mean, this is like most of the rest of the world outside of the U.S. was were, were doing systems that were more like this long before we were. Where like, or you know, you just literally just bought the phone outright uh, and then paid like cheaper plans. Like, it does make more sense this way. Things are a little bit more honest, even even if even though they, as usual, America has taken a straight, normal, honest system and has twisted it in such a way that it's really confusing and complicated, and tries to hide all the actual costs. Still, it's called capitalism. <laughs> That's called something. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I think this is still this is long term a better system, even if it is somewhat confusing in the short term as we have made this transition over the last few years. All right. Uh, John, tell me, if I take a photograph of you flashing me the peace sign, is that a problem? This is related to the idea of biometrics and how accessible the features of your body may be to other people, uh, because once they have them, and if you use them as a means of security on your devices, then you've got a problem, because as we established that show, your face is indeed your face and your fingers are your fingers. Um, and so I, I was talking about how it is easier to get pictures of someone's face than it is to get pictures of their fingerprints. Uh, two uh, articles related to this. One from Japan where cultural custom is to flash the peace sign, two fingers up in the air, in photos. And if you do that, obviously you're facing two of your fingerprints right at the camera. Get good enough lighting, get enough megapixels, you can lift your prints off of that. So there's an article about uh, that happening and being careful about it because you are literally showing them your fingerprints. Here they are. And, you know, technology is amazing. We can lift fingerprints from that. And then the second article was in a more challenging scenario. Can we pull fingerprints from a photo where someone's not flashing a peace sign, but we just happen to catch their finger at the right angle at the right time, whether it be video or still photos? And the answer is, yes, you can do that as well if you get the right shot, Uh, all of which is scary and all of which uh, leads to the idea that especially for public figures or people who expect to be photographed or people who have access to things that are highly desirable as opposed to just like your personal email account. But if you are someone who is a head of state or something and you're using your fingerprints for something important, then people are highly motivated to get them. Uh, So, yeah, be careful out there. Don't show people your fingers. Or your face, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, just never be photographed in any capacity, ever. Yep. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code ATP at checkout to get 10% off. Almost anything you want to start today, almost any new project or business or hobby, they almost all need websites. And nobody wants to spend a lot of time on the website itself. You just want the website to be there and to be awesome and to be easy to design and make and update, but you don't want to have to worry about the actual infrastructure that the website is running, the CMS, the hosting, and everything like that. You just want that to be done for you in a nice way that you don't have to really manage or think about because what you really should be thinking about is your project or your business. 
That's what Squarespace lets you do. Squarespace is an amazing platform that lets you make beautiful, professionally designed websites in almost no time. It is shocking how easy it is. No matter what your skill level is, from novice to expert, you can use Squarespace to make a beautiful website customized to your heart's content in no time. If you need any help, Squarespace is there for you with world-class support. If you're making a website for somebody else, that's, that's especially important because that means when you hand over the website to them, they can ask Squarespace for support whenever they need it instead of asking you. It's an incredible platform. It's incredibly advanced. I highly suggest you start, you try Squarespace. Whenever you need to make a website next for whatever project you're doing next, start it there first. See what see what you can get done there because I bet what you'll find is that you can get it all done there. And then you're out, what, a half hour to just see for yourself? Not even a credit card. Just try it for a half hour. See how far you get. I bet you'll be shocked. And I bet you'll decide, you know what? This is great. I'm staying right here. This is perfect. I'm done. And then you can get back to your actual project instead of fussing with your website for months. Check it out today. Go to squarespace.com and enter offer code ATP at checkout to get 10% off. Make your next move with a great website at Squarespace. Continuing, John, can you tell me about Chromebooks and Chrome OS and uh, how that relates to ARM Macs? We talked about the ARM Mac rumor uh idea from Slashdot uh, as a more lockdown Mac type system. And a lot of people brought up Chromebooks, which we have talked about in the past as an example of a very similar type of thing that has existed for a while. Uh, it's taking it more of the extreme. And not only is the Chromebook obviously like locked down in the way uh, that this, uh, you know, fantasized slash rumor our Mac was, but also it you know, shifts everything to network, which this rumor did not mention anything about the Mac being. But it all boils down to the piece of hardware being more robust in the face of user indifference. <laughs> like I don't know how to phrase it. Like you don't have to know how to. You can you can know less about using a personal computer and be successful with it in the same way that you don't need to know as much about personal computing to be successful with an iPad or an iPhone as opposed to a MacBook. So Chromebooks, there are far fewer places where you can get into trouble. Software, installing software is more straightforward. The number of things you can do to it to mess it up is much lower. The overall system is simpler. Obviously, Chromebook and Chrome OS are a far cry from the Mac operating system with a heavy focus on doing stuff with web technologies through a browser, uh, with many things being put into the cloud. And I think that simplification, in fact, is a big advantage Chromebooks have over any of Apple's devices. The aggressively cloud-centric focus that this thing you're holding in your hand is nothing. Everything you do, if you have access to the network, is saved to the network aggressively so that pretty much at any point when you're working on a Chromebook, you can do a five count and then throw the thing out the window into a lake and then go get another <laughs> Chromebook from the back room and sign in and resume where you left off. You cannot do that with any Apple device, right? That's the dream of the Chromebook. I've always thought it was a brilliant idea, perhaps not very well executed. But every time we talk about iPads or Macs, especially as they relate to education, uh, people come out of the woodwork to tell us how Chromebooks are kicking Apple's butt in education. Because what a dream machine. You know, educational institutions do not want to deal with wrangling computers or software or anything like that you have a bunch of computers that you're going to put a bunch of students in front of that's just you know they're, they're going to do everything they can to mess those things up and even if they don't 
the computers like eventually will mess themselves up, especially if they're, uh, you know, if it's windows and we're in, uh, a decade ago, I assume it's better now. Chromebooks are very resilient. So are your iPads for that matter, but Chromebooks even more so in that they, they are resistant to, uh, slowly degrading and or being compromised by, uh, devious students. And there's lots of good tools for managing fleets of these things and for having multiple students sign into them. And Apple's made some strides here with their weird multi-user sign in and out, sync everything from iCloud, things they've been doing with the iPad lately. But um, Chromebooks almost always went on price because you can get cheap, crappy ones. And, you know, cash-strap schools love that. And they're doing very well in management. Um, And I always wonder if Apple cares that much about that market or do they just like the rest of the many markets they just want the high end of that market they just want to sell ipads to the rich schools and let everyone else have chromebooks or something but uh i worry that the value proposition represented by chromebooks in the ideal if not in in actuality is uh not falling on deaf ears at apple but is not valued by the people inside apple as much as it should be because talk about future of computing many of the aspects promised by chromebooks and many of them delivered by chromebooks definitely feel more like the future of computing in terms of having to worry less about managing the machine and having to worry less about the machine itself because in a, in a network connected world uh yes you can work offline but it would be great if the source of truth was someplace fast and reliable that is not sitting in front of you well, this is part of what uh, last last week when we were talking about that uh, that rumored slash dot comment lockdown next generation ARM Mac. Uh, even though, again, dis- disclaimer already, that was very unlikely to be true. However, one thing I forgot to mention during my rant about how good that might be is that that might address the Chromebook market pretty well too. Like that wouldn't have to be a high end hardware device that could run on iPad class hardware and be passable. And so they they could, if Apple wanted to address this market, which you know, as you as you pointed out, they might not want to. Although I think it's, I, I'm with you. I, I think they they should address it if they reasonably can. Um, which is not to say definitely yes or no, but I think if they if they reasonably can address it, I think they should, uh, because having mass numbers of students growing up using all Google services on all Google computers is probably not good for Apple long term. Uh, but that being said. If Apple could take that kind of next-gen Mac on ARM concept and make a very low-end hardware device that was basically like, you know, mid-generation iPad-level hardware, like, suppose that iOS is two years away, they could take today's, like, iPad Air 2 hardware, sell it in two years in this little, like, you know, MacBook One-sized case for 400 bucks, maybe? I mean, like, that could actually get get them a lot of the way there. And that that and that OS's additional lockdownness and easy management and easy security and everything would all help in that regard too. So, I think one of the, one of the things that that made me consider that that comment as possibly interesting and possibly plausible is that Apple has to be feeling their they have to be feeling like the hurt a little bit from the massive success of Chromebooks in schools. They have to be feeling that on some level. Whether they choose to address it yet is another question, but I think if they're going to address it, that hypothetical lockdown arm Mac would be a really nice way to address it because obviously they they can try pushing iPads. They have as much as they want, and they have gotten decent numbers of iPads sold into schools, but there's a reason why those Chromebooks keep selling so well, and and a big reason is price, no question. And it's, you know, again, it's a question of whether Apple is is willing to or should compete on price to that level. 
but also a big a big uh, reason for that is that a lot of schools and students do prefer working on some kind of laptop shaped device with a laptop keyboard uh, and st- and like it, it, yes you can put keyboards on iPads but it, we all know from trying that like that's not really what they're great at that's not really what they're designed for and if you're trying to manage a fleet of student devices the last thing you want is detachable expensive accessories you know you want it to be one integrated unit that you can manage as one integrated unit um, so that actually might be part of their strategy to combat Chromebooks long-term. And if it isn't, I think it might be worth considering whether it should. So this is yet another time we have to bring up that one of the big advantages Google has in terms of management is the fact they do do everything server-side, and that is Google's strength and historically has not been Apple's strength to have very robust uh, cloud services where the source of truth is in the cloud, not on the device in the same way you know it doesn't necessarily have to be web-based tools like google docs and stuff which by the way uh is in extensive use in schools i'm I'm using it at work now too and uh, we've mentioned this before we use it for our show notes it's it's to the point where like i'm I'm waiting for it to unseat microsoft word in the entire corporate world i know that's going to take so freaking long but uh, among certain wings of large corporations, it is possible to d- displace Word and everybody is happier. And seeing my kids do everything in Google Docs is like Marco brought up. If you if you grow up doing that, you just think, oh, word processing equals Google Docs. And how does Google Docs work? You need servers. The servers need to be reliable. They need to be fast. They need to be always up. They need to not lose data. Uh, Google is really good at that. Apple is not as good at it. So that's one weakness Apple has in, in doing that. And the other reason I think Apple should be thinking about this market where Chromebooks are giving them a run for their money with iPads and everything is like, it is a demanding environment. Uh, public schools with a bunch of kids messing with your stuff is demanding. Physically speaking, it's demanding from a management perspective because you have a lot of devices. You have people managing them who perhaps are not, the most technically savvy because that's not their job like teachers have to deal with them and they don't they want to be teachers they don't want to be like it managers right um so the easier it is to manage the better uh but it like making a device that is successful in that environment like that is very hostile much more hostile than corporate it much more hostile than an individual user's house who buys the thing and posts an unboxing video and treats it like a little perfect baby right schools are brutal but in the same way that uh, you know, OXO Good Grips, company that I believe, I don't know if it was founded on this or was aimed at this originally, but the story I've always heard, and I like it, so I'll keep repeating it as if it's true, uh, was that they were making tools for people uh, with arthritis and other sort of motor difficulties with their hands. If you have trouble operating a regular can opener, try the OXO can opener, because I know I know you can't, like, it hurts to turn a regular can opener, but here we have one that has very grippy material and a big, rounded uh turny thing with lots of leverage and so you know and it turns out good old turns out everyone loves it uh if you make (laughs) tools that are easy that are easy for people to use who have hand mobility or strength problems people who do not have hand or mobility or strength problems also love them because they're just better tools they give you better mechanical advantage they work more smoothly so if you make something for an environment that is demanding in some way oh uh, our customers only have this amount of hand strength and the average adult has five times that can you make a can opener that works for them if you successfully do that you haven't made oh this is only a niche device for 
people who have mobility problems with their hands. No, what you've made is an amazing can opener. So if you make a laptop that can survive and continue functioning and be manageable by teachers and students in a public school environment, you just happen to have also made an awesome laptop that you can put into the guy's house who's going to you know, treat it like a perfect little baby and always like do everything nice with it and read articles about it and do all that stuff. They'll love it too, because guess what? It's just easier to manage. It works more often. There are fewer problems. That is just a better product all around. So I would never want to see Apple surrender this market, if only because it acts as a crucible for uh, testing the, uh, the the durability of every part of your product, from the hardware to the software to the management to the whole nine yards. Let's talk about uh, Enno Relling, who writes, I bought my first MacBook Pro for work last year. Since my job is web development and thus I target, the, the, the target is obviously Linux, I chose to go case-sensitive to avoid trouble as much as possible. I've been burned by Windows case-ignorant file system in the past. Uh, given how long OS X and HFS Plus ding, have been around, I expected that most modern software would run on either setup, but now I've learned that both Steam and Adobe Creative Suite will not run on my machine unless I reformat it. Oops. I would love to hear your opinion <laughs> on the state of this and uh, who you think is to blame for this mess. John, as our file system expert. Humans are to blame, as always. Uh, so, yeah, the, the case-sensitive versus insensitive thing. HFS Plus and HFS before it, uh, and MFS, I believe, um, were all case-insensitive in that you could not have two files whose file names differed only in capitalization. And there's a whole bunch of uh, Unicode normalization rules uh, revolving around that, but let's just talk about ASCII, capital and lowercase letters. If you had a file named my file, all caps, you could not have a file right next to it in the same directory called my file, all lowercase, because guess what? HFS plus does not distinguish between those, uh, which is mostly a human factors choice uh, on the original Mac because regular people don't consider those different things. Like find me the, the file named Jerry. Uh, no, not the one with the lowercase J, the one with the capital J. Uh, being able to uh, not having files that differ only in case because people will type the wrong file names in and think they didn't save it and stuff like that. So it is an important user interface thing, but they implement it down at the file system level, which means not only does the interface present in that way, but you physically can't save files that differ only in case. Now, why would anybody want files that differ only in case? Sometimes case it contains information. If you have acronyms or abbreviations or other type of things in your file names and they happen to spell out words like and or something and you happen to have another file name that has the lowercase because they wanted the thing and you know case does have meaning in some cases but the most important reason that case insensitivity the historic multi-decade case insensitivity on the mac uh is potentially a problem is if you ever change your mind, if you ever say, actually, we've decided for the future, since people don't really deal with the file system that much anyway, say on your phones or on your iOS devices where people don't see the file system, uh, we don't need that extra complexity because it is an extra complexity. Every time you look up a file, you have to see if there's any variation on that, on, on that file's case. And the same thing for writing a file, you have to make sure no files exist with any variation of that file name's case. Uh, and practically speaking, lots of software made for other platforms, like say Unix software, or open source software, has files that are part of either the source code or the actual operation of the of the the binaries uh in practice that differ only in case and if you can't store them on the file system you can't even like untar uh, uh you know the source of an open source tool and build it because it's got dot lowercase c files and dot capital c files because someone thought dot capital c was great for c plus uh you know many <laughs> decades ago and it will 
either puke or just randomly overwrite files and you will have things that don't build there there's plenty of open source software that has plain old source files foo.c and capital foo.c in the same directory that this happens it's it's a thing and if you can't deal with it at all then you have to make like disk images or virtual machines and all sorts of stuff like that um but the real whammy is for decades and decades the mac has been like this and human beings have been writing software for the mac and those human beings have put file paths in their software they've written code that reads things from the file system based on their path and a surprising amount of time those file paths that the software is trying to read from the file system do not match the case of the files on disk and nobody notices when you run it on a case insensitive file system because if you were looking for you know uh you know file.conf where the where the f is capital but on the on the file system it's actually lowercase your program works fine because it says open me file.conf with a capital f and it says i hear i found it and it opens lowercase file.conf and you're good to go because that's how the apis work you try to run that on a case sensitive file system and the wheels fall off the wagon all of a sudden the thing doesn't work can't even start up you know you're using it it does weird stuff and it doesn't function correctly uh and steam which isn't even that long on the mac platform i guess it's been a few years now but uh, adobe creative suite has deep roots lots of complicated software inevitably has some part that either assumes case insensitivity uh as like a foundational assumption of some section of the code or accidentally assumes case insensitivity by looking up files based on paths that don't match the actual case of the files on disk or you know very more complicated variations of that where one part of the thing will write a file and the other thing will read it but they won't agree on the case and it's just there are so many places where things can go wrong and this is where the conventional wisdom goes that if you format your mac as case sensitive be prepared for a whole bunch of your software not to work and for your only alternative to be to reformat as case insensitive to get stuff working you might say well why doesn't everybody just fix their software well it's a chicken egg thing they don't need to fix their software because nobody runs case sensitive hfs plus on their macs and no one runs hfs case sensitive hfs plus on their macs because none of their software works and so they're in an impasse there uh iOS devices have been case sensitive from day one, which is a wise choice. So there's there are not a bunch of iOS developers out there writing applications that expect <laughs> to read files with paths that don't match the case. Because guess what, they wouldn't work. So that's great. Um, uh, but with APFS, I'm not even sure what they're going to end up doing on the Mac because the APFS is not officially released on the Mac; it's only on iOS. Um, but it one way to solve the chicken egg thing is say, hey, guess what, APFS is case sensitive only. I can't imagine them doing that because, as we can see, Adobe Creative Suite and Steam wouldn't work, and those are not obscure applications. So, yeah. Um, so sorry, uh, bad news. You probably have to reformat your disk as case insensitive to get your software to work again. Uh, inscrutable humans got you again. Ay, ay, ay. Did you know, by the way, I guess Marco, I was like, does Marco have any Mac apps? Do you, it's like, it's a good thing if you write a, 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 an application or any kind of software for the Mac to find out, do you have these kind of problems in your software? Because you'll never know it if you just run a regular Mac all the time, but you'll be surprised. They're lurking. I probably have them in my stupid blog system that I use to publish <laughs> my blog once a year because I only ever run it from a case insensitive file system. There's probably in that tiny little piece of code someplace where I do something stupid about case with file paths. We're sponsored this week by Eero. Go to eero.com and use promo code ATP at checkout to get free extra added shipping. Wi-Fi in our houses just isn't good enough. When you only have one router, which is the model we've been sold on forever, 
no matter how many antennas you put on it, no matter how high powered it is, there's going to be dead spots and weak spots in most houses or apartments. We've all been there. We all have like the one room where the Wi-Fi only gets like one little arc and it doesn't really work unless you hold the iPad upside down. I've actually done that. Uh, And this just is not a very good system for today when we have so many Wi-Fi devices that depend on a solid connection in our homes. You know, what year is this? We should have reliable Wi-Fi in our entire houses. And Eero lets us do that by having multiple access points work together from different points in the house to just blanket your entire place in solid, strong, fast Wi-Fi coverage. The way they do this, so they sell the little Eero units. They're kind of like the size of an Apple TV, these little nicely designed little things. And you plug one of them in the same way you'd plug in any other Wi-Fi router. You plug it into your internet connection, so, you know, wherever that is. And then you can plug the other ones in anywhere else in your house, and they talk to each other over a separate mesh network that they make. And then they blanket your home in pure high-speed Wi-Fi from each one. And they all work together to form one giant network. And it's way faster than traditional repeaters or anything like that because of the separate mesh network thing. Check out the reviews. You will see for yourself... And they sent us some, too, and we tried them out, and we've had similarly great experiences. Eros are fast, and they are so easy to set up with their app, and they have tons of great features. They have things like parental controls and all sorts of new features being added in their very easy-to-use app uh, all the time. They've added so many features already. It's it's only been out for like a year or something, and they've added so many features already. It is very highly rated. It's rated uh, currently 4.4 stars on Amazon with over 750 reviews. There's a a one-year warranty. There's a return period if you don't like it check it out we highly recommend eero it is so much better than just using one router go to eero.com that's e-e-r-o.com and use code atp at checkout to get free extra added shipping thank you very much to eero for sponsoring our show once again so john happy birthday to you your birthday was actually what a month and a half ago but the gods have delivered you the ultimate birthday present, sort of. What's uh, what's going on on Kickstarter these days, John? My favorite Twitter client has been, from the moment I started using Twitter, uh, Twitterific, which I think was the very first Twitter client. Certainly, it was the first thing I ever used Twitter with. I did not sign up for Twitter based on their terrible website. I only signed up for it once <laughs> Twitterific was out. I'm like, all right, I'll, this this is a good thing to do. Yeah, I mean, if uh, it wasn't was like, truly the first app that used a Twitter API, it was at least the first app that anyone ever used that used the Twitter API. And it was by right. far the first app that mattered. Yeah. And so it was an iOS app. and there was uh, But before that, there was a Mac app. I think the Mac app came first. Anyway. Yes. Um, yeah. So Twitter clients have had a bumpy road. A couple of years back, Twitter decided that it didn't really want third parties to make apps. And it started this whole thing where you can only make apps if you have these special tokens and there's a limited number of those. And some apps were grandfathered in. Oh, and by the way, a bunch of new features we're rolling out can't be used by third party clients because we really don't like you third party clients. And uh, it's made the market for Twitter apps very difficult for third party Twitter apps very difficult. Uh, Twitter for iOS has continued to be updated. Nevertheless, it's gone through many major revisions. And if you were to go buy it on the App Store today, which uh, I recommend, it is a great Twitter app. I've never, I've never wavered, despite also buying many other Twitter apps and having them installed. I love Twitter because of its unified timeline, where it makes everything that has happened on Twitter uh, related to the people you follow a single list sorted by time: mentions, tweets, direct messages, your own tweets that go out just all ordered by time that's it you know you can view them separately if you want but i like it to just be one big list that's the unified timeline anyway 
The Mac client, on the other hand, has not been updated in many, many years because it just hasn't been economically feasible to update it because the market for third-party Mac Twitter clients is just not sustainable anymore. The market for third-party iOS Twitter clients is basically barely sustainable because so many people use the official app and there are still features that you could only do in the official app. I hate the official app, even though I have it installed. Um, oh, it's the worst. Anyway. I don't understand how anyone uses it. It's confusing to me. People people use their Twitter in all sorts of different ways. Um, so uh, I happen to know uh, some of the people who work at Icon Factory who make Twitterific, and for many years I have been begging them half-jokingly to, to fix Twitter for the Mac, which, by the way, I continue to use despite the fact that it is slowly crumbling. Like, you know when they added the thing where the tweets can be longer uh, than you would have expected and uh, with, like it doesn't count like the mentions or everything towards the or the URLs or mentions towards the, mm-hmm. the character count, some some change related to the length of, of tweets. And if you don't support like the new longer tweet thing, what you get from the old version of the API is a tweet that is truncated and it goes like like towards the end of the tweet it just goes dot 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 and then has a url that you can click on to read the whole tweet on twitter's website that's what long tweets look like in twitter for the mac and yet i still continue to use it i can't i can't do so many things from the mac version of the client that i can do from the ios one but i still continue to use it because i like it and every other mac client that i've tried i dislike strongly in some way so i i really wished for Twitter if it's coming back to the Mac, but I understood, like, look, you can't, you know, if it's not a viable market, it's not a viable market, even though I offered to pay obscene amounts of money for <laughs> Twitter for the Mac. In fact, I believe it was only last week or the week before that you said, I would pay $100 for an updated version of Twitterific for the Mac. I've said that many times, and I may or may not have been saying that because I may or may not have known about this project ahead of time. But <laughs> anyway... <laughs> um, now there is a Kickstarter, like the, every, the thing that we've joked about for so many years, like how much money would it take to fund the number of developers who need to make this application? Let's just do a Kickstarter. And if enough people want Twitter for the Mac, they will fund this thing and uh, they will make this application. Like it's, it's an easy way to know that, yes, you will have the money to pay for the development of this project because you get the money upfront ish uh, in exchange for the application. Um, so I'm not, I have backed this Kickstarter. I'm not going to tell you how much money I pledged, but it was a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> it they uh, the goal is seventy five thousand, but I want you all to ignore that because the real goal is a hundred thousand. The stretch, the so called stretch goal, because the stretch goal includes all the features that I want, including fairly essential things like direct messaging. So I really want this Kickstarter to get to a hundred thousand. And if it doesn't, it will just be proving what Icon Factory has been saying all along: is there's just not enough people who want this who are going to pay for it even though some of us are paying very much more than $5 for the privilege of having this application. Um, so you may or may not like using Twitter on the Mac, period, because many people just don't use it on the Mac at all. Maybe use the website or whatever. But if you are using an existing Mac Twitter client and don't like it, or it seems uh, like it hasn't been updated in a while, like Twitter for the Mac, or it doesn't work the way you want it to, um, this is an opportunity to get a shiny new Twitter client uh, from a company that really knows how to make Twitter clients uh, for for only as much money as you could possibly afford. So please, please back this. It's up to $35,000 now, and it has been open. It's got 28 days to go, and it's $35,000 out of a goal of not 75, ignore that goal, 100K. 
please everybody make this happen because I want this Twitter client. But if we don't make it happen, does that mean we will finally break you of your ridiculous insistence on the unified timeline? Uh, no, I will never. I'm going to use Twitter <laughs> for the Mac until it doesn't launch anymore. And I after figured. that, I'm going to I'm going to beg my friends at Icon Factory to give me a special build that does launch. Mm-hmm. No, I'm just giving you a hard time. No, I, I know some of the folks from the Icon Factory. We all do actually, and um, they're, they're great people. So definitely check out this Kickstarter and uh, throw them a few dollars if you can, because uh, it would make John happy and it would make the folks at Icon Factory happy, and they're they're good people. And yeah, good swag. They have T-shirts. They have little, uh, you know, vinyl Ollie dolls. Ollie is their little, the blue Twitter bird. Um, you should read some of the history, I think, on the Icon Factory website. I don't know if they link to it. The history between Icon Factory and Twitter. Many of the things that you associate with Twitter were, in fact, invented by Icon Factory. Terminology, iconography, so much. Uh, Icon Factory is, like, practically part of Twitter, only uh, not in the financial sense, because they do not have thousands of employees and bazillions of dollars of uh, investment. Didn't Hockenberry come up with tweet? Was that him? No, it was his coworker. Is that right? I think so. Something uh, like that. Yeah, I like, forget the details. Which I mean, a lot, like a lot. You know, John, like you know, the, I, I believe they were the first ones to actually use a bird as part of the logo. That yeah, mm-hmm. the, the word tweet. Mm-hmm. They might have even invented at replies. I don't know. It's they did a lot, like a lot, a lot of of Twitter like standard things and practices and mechanisms and everything were invented by Icon Factory or by their by like their developers for their apps yeah, and ollie the blue twitterific bird is uh, along with the uh with panic's transmit truck one of the most ripped off icons in the entire internet you see it everywhere it's like that's just a generic representation of twitter or that's twitter's logo nope nope not not twitter's logo at all in fact twitter's logo is worse than icon factory's logo they should have just paid them to make their logos for them but they didn't Cool. Well, good luck. I don't know if I'm if I should wish you good luck, John. If I should wish the Icon Factory good luck, I guess a little of both. You should do but... neither. You should pledge money. That's what you should do. Here's here's why you should all pledge money. So, a, this is great software supported by great people doing great things. Agreed. B, Twitter needs more diversity in software, and and uh, Twitterific is one of the very few clients that got grandfathered in with a very large amount of user tokens. And so they actually can make, they're like one of the only companies that can make a widespread Twitter client. And C, if this Kickstarter doesn't fund, John gets to keep all of his money. And so we want John, we want John to have spent a ridiculous amount of money on his Twitter client. So I can say it's like the second most expensive application of my computer after Photoshop. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We want John's copy of Twitterific to be the this ridiculous investment he has made. And so please, everyone, go fund this so that his pledge will go through. Uh, it really is just all the money that I would have spent on a new Mac Pro. It's just being funneled into <laughs> from wow. software Kickstarters. Oh, my goodness. All right. Moving on, uh, let's see what do we have here. Uh, Planet of the Apps. Oh God! Oh, boy. Uh, can we start okay. with before we start talking about this show? Can we start with the uh, someone? Maybe we have a lawyer in the room. How can they get away with calling it Planet of the Apps when it sounds like Planet of the Apes? Is there any? Is it does it fall under the the uh, like parody where like it's referencing thing a thing but in a joking way? So it it's almost like trade dress. Like I don't know. I don't know the. Uh, the, the legal things about this, but it just seems too weird to me that they can get away with Planet of the Apps without paying somebody who has the right to Planet of the Apes. So follow up for next week. Someone tell me what the deal is. Yeah, I mean, three things. Like, A, we aren't trademark lawyers. B, 
they might have paid someone to license it <laughs> and C, they might just not care and just accept if if anybody threatens them then they will just settle it because <laughs> the apple, luxury of being apple and exactly. sitting on the top of a mountain of cash so high you can't even hear the people yelling at you exactly like no. it's probably we will buy the planet of the apes franchise from universal or whoever the hell owns it you know when we sneeze and the money falls out of our pockets yeah exactly like and it's probably i mean you know as as amateurs here it does kind of seem like it might be considered like generic enough or clearly clear enough parody or satire that it might not be a clear-cut case of actual infringement yeah. the, uh, the humor it, the yeah. humor angle is the strongest one but i'm like right. it's not that funny no it's not <laughs> apple's not good at being funny no. <laughs> and i was like how bad does your pun have to be before it stops being humor <laughs> I, I i think one one thing that you know i, I don't want to bash apple uh, too much about this but i do think that one very clear difference between Apple now versus Apple under Steve is that Steve was a cool person, like not and and not in all ways, mm. and and he knew the ways in which he wasn't cool, and he kind of he kind of played off of them, um, but he was fundamentally like a pretty cool person uh, to to the people who follow Apple and, and to Apple customers, and I don't think anybody at Apple now is cool, uh, at least in, in the senior leadership, uh, but I'm not sure they know that. It, it actually kind of seems like they don't know that and are actually under the opposite impression. CFED is cool. Come on. What is not cool <laughs> no, no, about no. CFED? CFED is, is, he is like the dad joke, but he knows that and he plays that. So he actually does a, he does a pretty good job of managing that, but he's, he's not much in the public eye. Uh, I, I mean, I, I get like, I, I don't know, like Tim, I think is profoundly, deeply uncool, but is under the opposite impression. Uh, he's not, he doesn't think he's cool. Yeah, he's, I agree. He's he's just he's comfortable his own skin. You're thinking of Eddie Q, who thinks well, he's cool no, Eddie, that, yeah, Eddie's exactly. a whole different level. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, I I I wish that, like basically Apple today is run by a bunch of middle aged white men, and it seems like they that is showing a lot. <laughs> recently <laughs> and and it's unfortunate um and th- that isn't to say that they can't still make good stuff but i think some of their decisions are a little odd um you know in in context but anyway uh well so I mean, back I mean, to before the we get off of the name though like yeah. just just to defend uh or the opposite to condemn steve jobs coolness remember that he wanted to call the imac mac man we all have bad days remember that <laughs> talked out of it by advertising executives mac man i believe I'm, my memory is correct in that someone can google and correct me if i'm screwing it up but thank goodness for imac yeah to be fair that was a long time ago <laughs> i know but it's just like you know name and taste like and steve wasn't as cool back then in in, in the mid 90s steve wasn't as cool 1998 <laughs> imac <laughs> anyway all right. all right so there was a trailer for apple well, really, I guess Apple Music's TV show. So the Apple Music TV show. I don't know. It's a little weird. It's like music television. Yeah. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> um, so it's called Planet of the Apps. Uh, I only saw the trailer once. It's like two and a half minutes. So at this point, if you're listening to the show, feel free to pause and watch it. Uh, it so I have mixed feelings about this. It is clearly, unequivocally not a show meant for the three of us. And that's okay. Like, in and of itself, that's not a bad thing. Um, the idea is, I, if I understand this right, a bunch of uh, app developers or potential app developers uh, come in and do an escalator pitch. So they are on an escalator 
And as the escalator is moving down, uh, they have like 60 seconds to make a pitch to Will I Am, Gwyneth Paltrow, Jessica Alba, and Gary Vaynerchuk, um, who I guess at that point get to choose if they want to tutor any of these uh, teams. And then I guess there's a competition at the end. And if you win, among other things, you get a special placement in the App Store, which most people would probably give an appendage to get. Um <sighs> Wait, so can I first start out with the escalator pitch thing? Yeah. As a brief diversion here? Okay, so I have a question. Now, obviously, I have never pitched to a VC. I've been around VCs. I've been in board meetings with VCs. I've interacted with a lot of VCs, but I've never actually pitched to one. That was always done by David and and other people who were around me. Um, That being said, I'm familiar with the concept of the elevator pitch. Where the idea is you're in an elevator with the VC and you only have like until the, you only have like the elevator ride to pitch them on your idea and then like you got to convince them in this short amount of time and it's supposed to be like a minute or something like that. However, how did this come about? Because Silicon Valley has very few tall buildings. That's an interesting point. There aren't that many elevators there to begin with, and the ones that are there are probably going over like three floors. So the elevator yeah, ride—they are lazy people, and they have elevators in two-story buildings. But it, but still, like that's not like a one-minute pitch; it's like an eight-second pitch. Like, how, where where did this idea come about? Maybe in New York, taller buildings. But Silicon Valley money has always been West Coast VCs. There there are very very few New York VCs that actually fund Silicon Valley or or tech uh, projects. I think elevator pitch predates Silicon Valley. But going back yep. to uh, Steve Jobs again, remember the story about being trapped in an elevator with Steve Jobs, and he has enough time to fire you in there. So <laughs> for you to say the wrong thing and for him to decide that you're fired. Well, he was remarkably efficient. <laughs> wow. Anyway, yeah, elevator, I think, the, I think the, elevator pitch predates uh, Silicon Valley, but if not, like it's metaphorical more than it is actual. But you, but you got to the heart of it. The idea is that if you have to sum up your idea in a short amount of time, you should be able to say something that's compelling instead of like just rambling on for 20 minutes and people not knowing what you're selling you need to have an elevator pitch and people in the in the the chat room are like don't you mean uh when we said escalator pitch did you misspeak did you mean elevator pitch no just like planet of the apps get it apps instead of apes you think it's gonna be an elevator pitch but you see what we did there as someone who we all know would say they took it and they turned it it's not an elevator pitch it's an escalator pitch which makes even less sense because were you to accost somebody on an escalator that would be super weird because you wouldn't even be facing them and you'd be either above them or below them and the second thing is an escalator <laughs> ride takes even less time than an elevator ride so it is it is ill-conceived in every possible way except for one and that one way is is that an idea that fits in with a reality show answer yes well, totally and it's does. easier to film an escalator moving towards the hosts than it or the 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 VCs or whatever than it is an elevator moving up from the basement. And I guess the 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 four like uh, sponsors, hosts, whatever, are are looking at a video feed until they arrive until the the participants arrive. Like it's just weird. Anyway, uh, the name elevator pitch reflects the idea that it should be possible to deliver the summary in the time span of an elevator ride, or approximately thirty seconds to two minutes, and is widely credited to Eileen Rosenzweig and Michael Caruso while he was an editor for Vanity Fair. Uh, for its or- origin. So presumably this well predates Silicon Valley. So believe it or not, Silicon Valley, the world did not always revolve <laughs> around you. Truth be told. Um, so yeah, so this, this show, so I mean, I don't intrinsically have anything against reality shows. In fact, I watched some truly and utterly atrociously terrible reality shows, not often competitions, but be that as it may, I have watched seasons of American Idol in the past. So I, I I have seen my fair share of reality shows. I've seen The Voice many times. Um, I have one reality show friend. 
Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, this this show does not speak to me at all, and I find it to be fairly preposterous. But I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because I don't think this show is really for me because it's too I know too much about how the sausage is made and this is not a show about how the sausage is made despite how they're pitching it it's a show about making sausage making glamorous and my have I killed this analogy but be that as it may um, now I don't like sausage anymore thanks a lot yeah right so I mean I can't watch it I presume because I do not pay for Apple Music I never have I, I used it for the free trial and then never paid for it um I, I would probably watch it if I could for an episode or two just to see what I thought. I don't expect I would like it, and I don't think that's a problem. Marco, what do you think? I mean, obviously, I've had similar reactions to most programmers looking at this um, of just like, wow, this this kind of looks awful from the trailer. Um, it is very clear that it's really meant as a ripoff of Shark Tank. Uh, and whatever the original version of Shark Tank was called somewhere else, mm -hmm. uh, probably in Europe because we steal all their TV and rename it and everyone thinks we invented it. Um, but it might be an entertaining show in the same, like, like uh, what was that? Um, not Freaks and Geeks, uh, Beauty and the Geek. Like, it was like this horrible dating reality show. Oh, I think I saw that and it was delightful. It was terrible, but it was delightful. Yeah. And like, as a geek watching that, you're, you could you saw you saw all the ridiculous holes in the show, but it was still fun to watch as like a fun garbage TV show, and this could probably be that too for anybody who is remotely familiar with software development and and building app, apps and building businesses. This might be that kind of thing too. It might be a fun garbage watch. It's fine, you know. I think a lot of people are reading a lot into this. I I don't. I wouldn't read much into this. Um, there's a lot of arguments against it that Apple maybe shouldn't be doing this or that it's going to cast app development in a bad light or it's going to distort people's view on apps. And I think most of those things are both true on some level, but not a big deal in, in reality and all likelihood. It, like, they're not going to be enough of an effect on anything to really matter because chances are this is going to go not very far it's going to be watched by not that many people and it's going to make not that big of a cultural impact of any sort uh, so it's probably just going to be fun garbage tv for some people to watch i think it's weird that it's in the music app everywhere and it's only on apple music a lot of people are going to have trouble ever even knowing it exists as a result those people who do know it exists are going to have trouble finding it um so that's all going to hurt viewership probably but anyway uh you know the actual show itself you know, it's 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 a garbage reality TV show. The hosts of it are, have, I, I think, limited knowledge about the reality of app building. Um, Gary Vaynerchuk, I like a lot. Uh, I I think he he really he is the person on the show that I'm most interested to to see. I I, I followed his work back in the day. I met him a couple times. He's super nice. He is the real deal. He knows what he's talking about. Um, not necessarily in app development as far as I know, but you know, he's more of like a business consultant. But that's what I wanted to get to though, is that that's kind of more what the show is about. Like it's called Planet of the Apps and it's focused on apps because Apple's funding it and making it and promoting it. So Apple wants it to be all about them and the world that they think they created. So of course they're they're focusing the marketing and the naming and everything else on apps. And all the app developers are saying this is crazy because this isn't how apps are made, but the show really isn't about apps. It's like if the show was called Planet of the Websites. And, you know, it's like <laughs> the website is like an interface 
to the business. And you, you you don't go around saying, "Hey, I'm making a new website." Like, no, you, 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 you did make, in 1993. Let me tell you. Well, yeah, but the point is, like, for the for the types of things that most people launch today that would be entertaining to watch at all, no one is going to watch a show about you making a bespoke notes taking app or something like that. Like, they're they're going to watch a show that's kind of like Shark Tank or America's Got Talent or stuff like that. Like, that's what people actually want to watch these garbage reality shows for. Um, and so they want to hear like the big business idea because this is a show I, I made a tweet about. It. This is kind of like a show for like idea people, those people who always accost app developers at, at at gatherings and stuff. And like, I have this great idea for an app. You, will you not tell anybody? You, you can't steal it. You got to go 50-50 with me. I'll be the idea guy. You you make the app. Okay, here's my idea. And they tell you some ridiculous idea that is usually impossible and or terrible. This show is for those people to watch kind of like aspirationally because they think that could be them someday that's who this is actually for or people like us who just want garbage tv to watch sometimes um but the point is like this is not going to reflect what it's like to be an indie app developer because not only do people not really want to watch that but most app development isn't indie app developers most app development is in-house employees or contractors for uh, for like bigger businesses that where the app Hi. is not exactly the app itself is not the business the app is just an interface to the business in the same way that 10 years ago the website was the interface to most businesses that were made in our in our industry right so we want this to be some other thing like people like us who are complaining we want it to be like this beautiful story about app developers and and it's just not going to be that it's going to be the exact same thing that it, that would have been 10 12 years ago people pitching vcs about ideas that were based on web apps and web services and social networks and you know very like that's it's going to just be that but where the interface to it happens to be an app in the app store it's not going to be great you know academically it's not going to be a high quality tv uh, but i don't think it's going to meaningfully impact the app business or people's perception of it for lots of reasons, not least of which I don't think many people will watch it, but also just as I said, just I don't think it really has much bearing on what most of us actually do, but I also think it doesn't really purport to because that does because what most of us really do or what we think we want to do with indie app development is such a very, very tiny sliver of the world of app, of app development as a whole. Thinking back to when we first talked about this and we had this, you know, there was so little information like Apple's making a show about app development, something, something, and then a few like celebrity names attached to it. Um, and we had that brief moment where we could talk about the possibility of this being a show that is actually about app development. And I think at the time we said, well, how can they, they can't make that interesting because no one wants to see someone sitting there encoding like that's not going to be on the show. Right. But still, we were we were entertaining the idea of a show about app development. But of course, like when the show comes out, it's not about app development, as Marco pointed out. It is it is basically like a subset of Shark Tank. Imagine Shark Tank, except the only thing you can pitch are businesses that are represented <laughs> by an application. You're right? making so your own true. bad pitch. Right. Well, that's, that's what it is. <laughs> okay. I have this great idea for a show. Are you ready? I'll be the idea guy. You make the entire show. Okay. It's like Shark Tank. But for apps, yeah, but o- but only but only apps. <laughs> like if you, so if your business can't isn't like rep, like Instagram would be a business represented by an app, but all sorts of things would be like: is the app the sort of standard bearer for your business? Is that how people deal with your business? Is it through an app? 
then you're fine. But if you have any other business idea, no, sorry, you got to go in Shark Tank, right? So it's a narrow slice thing. And presumably Apple does this because, hey, they're the app company. And so there's some kind of synergy there. But this brings up a, uh, a tweet that uh, our friend Cable Sasser from Panic uh, posted today or yesterday, I forget. He was arguing with Gruber about something, and he, and his reply was, uh, you can't just say, well, that's reality TV. Um, oh, he's he's using, well, that's reality TV as a verb. So I'm going to try to read this in the way that it says. You can't quote, well, that's reality TV, a thing from Apple. Does that sentence make sense to people? That's what he wrote. I'm yeah. trying real hard here. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. an actor. Um, it's from Apple. The experts of good taste now get a free pass for junk. Like, the idea is that you can't just say, oh, well, it's reality TV or whatever. Because it's from Apple, we have some expectations of taste, which, you know, getting Planet of the Apps, perhaps not getting off on the right foot right from the title. Um, when I saw this tweet, I was thinking, like, we, we've talked in past shows about Apple getting into the content market, and I still think that makes sense, because if they are going to try to compete with the Netflix and, their, and Amazon and stuff, and Netflix and Amazon are doing original content, Apple should be doing original content, too. But the thing about content is if you're doing original content well, not saying you can't, but probably you shouldn't imbue that content with any of the sensibilities from your company, which sounds like, well, isn't that Apple's whole thing? Isn't everything they do imbued with the sensibility of Apple? But content is different. There is nothing particularly about stranger things or man in a high castle that makes me think netflix or amazon like there's no none of their corporate dna in those shows creative content especially entertainment has to be true to its genre uh so if it's a sci-fi show make a good sci-fi show if it is a family drama make a good family drama if it's a wacky comedy make a good wacky comedy it doesn't matter how well wacky comedy family drama or sci-fi fit with your corporate branding and it's weird because Amazon and Netflix and Apple are these tech-based companies that do fairly different things with some overlap, but none of them have anything to do with creativity. But I think Netflix and Amazon have shown if you get the right people involved, basically like what is being supplied by Netflix and Amazon? Obviously, there's a venue for viewing, but the most important thing is money. Here you go, people who know how to get creative things created by creative people. Here's a bucket of money. Can you make a good show and out pops half of the cards? Answer, yes, if you throw enough money at it and you hire the right people. Netflix, a company that delivers plastic discs and streaming video to people's houses, you know, used to use the plastic discs, can make good content. And same thing with Amazon, the place that you buy stuff from, they deliver uh, for you in boxes, can make original content. So if Apple has decided, and you can uh, debate the merits of this, that they're going to make a reality show, I think we're getting a little bit confused by the fact that it involves apps. The bottom line is, all right, if you're going to make a reality show, what are reality shows like and can you make a good one? And I'm going to defend reality shows as a longtime viewer of reality shows from from the very beginning. I still watch and enjoy many of them. That there is such a thing as a good reality show and a bad reality show. Oh, yeah. But, But within the genre, like there is a genre. And if you look at this trailer, you go, that's a reality show like it is clearly recognizable as a reality show and i think it could be a good reality show if done well because it involves people with a skill and an ambition and a dream or whatever and they are going to you know in in all these scenarios where you have the panel of experts has to pick among them that can be very bad or it can be good where they're 
trying to encourage people after the initial like let's make fun of the other people who are really bad you know sort of american isle type thing like that i feel like is a bad aspect of it but either way once you get into the human story of like i want i want to do this thing you don't need to know what the details of their struggle are this won't be about application development probably it'll mostly be about starting a new business and business ideas and in the end unlike for example american idol in the end there is much less ability to make these people into superstars i mean even american idol had trouble eventually but like kelly clarkson had a reasonable expectation that if she won this reality show she would have a viable recording career a because the people picking her are going to pick people based on talent and b because you get an in with the recording industry which is way more monolithic and actually back then had even more power than it does today to make you a star uh because they control distribution and so on and so forth, much less so than they used to in the old days, but still it was a thing. But for this, for the app show, I don't particularly trust that the four people on the expert panel have any idea what is going to be a successful app beyond like any four random people that you picked in the tech industry. And furthermore, I don't particularly think that even Apple itself, by featuring you in the app store and heavily pushing you, is going to turn your idea into a viable business for the long term. Um, but I think none of that matters for reality shows because at this point, we are perfectly willing to accept that winning a reality show is its own reward. And whatever they promise you, we go, yeah, 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 you'll be rich and famous forever uh, or I'll forget you by next season because that's not what it's about. It's an entertainment <laughs> program and you want, and like I said, it can be done badly and exploitively or it can be done in a way that people enjoy where you get to see plain old human drama and people with skills trying to apply those skills in a challenging situation. And hopefully the judges... Uh, and the sponsors are supportive and encouraging, and it is a positive type of program with good production values that treats its contestants well, that has smart, funny, and interesting and charming judges. I believe a good reality show is possible. I don't know whether this will be one, but I think the fact that this reality show involves apps is a distraction and a thing that skews people's thinking about it. I guess the only thing you really debate is, should the first major piece of original content that Apple made, not counting Carpool Karaoke, which was an existing franchise, should it be a reality show? Maybe, maybe not. But again, I don't think it, by judging it based on that, you could say you shouldn't be trying to figure out how well does reality show fit with Apple's ethos. That's not the question at all. The question is, are reality shows popular? Yes, they are popular. Um, so if if you were picking a genre, and it's also different than what other people do, they're not doing a sci-fi uh, a retro sci-fi show or a show based on uh you know sci-fi books from uh, a well-known author right that that has been well-trod territory they're doing a reality show is their first thing which is a little bit different they're not doing a superhero thing or anything like that um so i think that's a reasonable choice and at some point someone convinced them if we are doing a reality show there's a little bit of synergy if we do it on apps but um i'm willing to give this show all the benefit of the doubt even though i certainly won't watch it and i'm not interested in it i don't watch shark tank either um, all the benefit of the doubt, but what I would say is, if Apple is serious about content, I hope it doesn't only do reality shows, because there's no reason Apple can't do original content in any genre that it wants, because it has that same thing that Amazon and Netflix have, mountains of money, and if they are wise and hire the right peoples, and you throw, throw mountains of money at them, they can make a good video content in any genre that you can imagine, and I love that that's happening with Amazon and Netflix, and I would like that for that to happen to Apple, because what the hell else are they going to do with their money if they're not making a car or whatever? So I'm all for it, even if it is weirdly connected with Apple Music, and even if I will never, ever watch this show. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I I understand why everyone was perturbed about it, and I understand that it's like, oh, this is a distraction, and eh, I, maybe for some of Apple, but I mean, for the developers that are that are doing the sorts of things that that the three of us really care about, I don't think it's much of a distraction at all. Well, and like, it's not like like it, it, the the people who are making this show were not taking off new Mac Pro hardware. To make this show, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they didn't pull, the Mac Pro hardware team is, is busily assembling the escalator, right? Exactly. Like, <laughs> and I don't even think it's a distraction because Apple is in the TV connected box business and they're in the streaming video business. Like they have been, you know, from like so this is not a new venture where they will sell you or rent you movies and video. Like, and everybody else who's in that business is doing original content, and I think it's that's been shown to be a model that works. So they are latecomers to this. All they are doing is continuing to compete in a market they were already in. It's not like, why are you making TV shows? You're distracted. No, they were already they were already in that market. They've been selling Apple TVs of various kinds for a long time. They've been selling video over the iTunes store for a long time. That's a market they're in. They're just competing in it. People should be encouraging them, like we're encouraging them to compete in the personal computer market. Yes, by all means, look at what your competitor is doing and try to make your product more valuable and desirable. Good job. Not a distraction at all. We are sponsored this week by Pingdom. Start monitoring your websites and servers today at pingdom.com slash ATP. You'll get a 14-day free trial. When you enter code ATP at checkout, you get 20% off your first invoice. Pingdom is an amazing monitoring service. I have used Pingdom now. In a couple of months, it'll be my 10-year anniversary. I use it for almost all of Tumblr, all of Instapaper, all of Overcast so far, and everything I've done in the meantime. It is such a great monitoring service. If you run a website or a server or any kind of web service, you want Pingdom to check it. Because here's what happens. Stuff goes down all the time, or it gets slow, or it some some test fails. Pingdom can alert you to that. They can check your website as often as once every minute, and of course you can customize that. They can check for more than for more than 70 global test servers. So you can see, for instance, if your site is slow or down in only part of the world uh, because of maybe some routing or DNS issue or something like that, they can test so many different things. And then you can be alerted however you want to be alerted. Text message, email, push notification from their app. There's so many different options. You can customize the frequency you're alerted, when you're alerted, why you're alerted. And then you can be the first to know if your website is down or if something is broken before you get a bunch of people on Twitter telling you, hey, you know, your site's been down for the last three hours. You don't want that. You want to be the first one to know so that you can go fix it before too many of your customers or users see it. And this stuff breaks on the internet all the time. Pingdom detects more than 13 million outages, more than 400,000 outages every day. So whether your web presence is a small website or a complete infrastructure, you should definitely monitor it. And if you're going to monitor it, I highly suggest Pingdom, my chosen monitoring service, for nearly 10 years. Go to pingdom.com slash ATP. I mean, geez, what else have I used for 10 years? Like, I, looking around my entire technology world, there's almost nothing else I've used for 10 years. I've only used coffee for like 12 years. It's incredible. Check out Pingdom. It is so, so good. Pingdom.com slash ATP for a 14-day free trial and get 20% off your first invoice with offer code ATP. Thank you to Pingdom for sponsoring our show. I don't even know how to pronounce this. Cavo? Cavo? Cavo. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly how you have to say it oh all right good i'm glad i'm glad i got it in it's, it's stratechery <laughs> <laughs> nicely done nicely done i always feel bad about that and primer 
you guys not I don't know you don't listen to the incomparable enough but you know you know the you don't know the movie either do you God, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of it existing <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm going to take that as a oh, wait, victory is that the one Marco? with the no, hold on is that not. the time traveling one with the box yes. Yes. like the refrigerator size box yes yo i have seen that actually i know wow, that. that's it anyway the title of that movie is p r i m e r and the person who made that movie uh initially expected people and preferred people to pronounce it primer no, but eventually gave up <laughs> because everybody, everybody who saw that word pronounced it primer, which is an alternate pronunciation of that word with a different meaning. Um, and so the creator of the movie had to go. And Sotekery, same situation. I believe the original logo had a, had a bar over the E to try to tell you it's a long E, say Stratekery. Right. Um, That's correct. But that didn't work. And the public has spoken. And now the creator of that site says Stratekery. Truth. Sorry, Ben Thompson. Anyway, uh, I have no Cabo. idea what this is about, so tell me about Cavo. <laughs> a lot of people were tweeting this uh, with the idea that this is the omnivorous box that I talked about on Hypercritical and earlier on uh, earlier episodes of ATP. It's such an old idea from like 2011 or whatever the hell Hypercritical was. Um, that was back when I was complaining a lot about TiVo, and what I wanted was someone to make a box, it would be nice if it was Apple, that sat on my tv and had a whole bunch of inputs it took video from all the places that i pay for stuff back in 2011 i was like hey i pay for cable and i also pay for netflix and i also have a, a you know a blu-ray player or a playstation you know all these different places that i can get video into my tv i would like all those inputs to go into this thing that i called an omnivorous box because it would consume anything and then I wanted one cable coming out of the omnivorous box into my television and one remote that controlled the omnivorous box. And I would be able to, through a single interface, have access to all the video that I pay for. I pay for a cable subscription. Cable has TV shows. They come on. My TiVo records them. Uh, I want access to all those shows, both live and recorded. I pay for Netflix. Uh, and, the, the, you know, if there's a Netflix client, either on my television or on the Omnibus box itself or on an Apple TV or something, I want to be able to see that stuff. I have a Plex server running and that's, you know, or a PS3 media server back then. Uh, and that has can play files from a hard drive somewhere in my basement. I want to be able to watch that kind of as well. And I want it to be one big unified interface. So when I look through the shows available for me to watch, it does not express to me in any way where this stuff comes from. It is just like, yes, this video comes from many different sources, but I give you a unified interface to it. It's just a series of things that you can watch, things that might come on in the future, things that have come on, come on in the past, things that you can stream right now. Just one big, contiguous, clean interface. And that is a super hard problem to solve because all of those people who distribute that content, cable companies, Netflix, even like PS3 media server people, do not want you to make that box. They want you to use their box and their remote and all that other stuff, uh, especially cable companies. Um, that making that box is would be fiendishly difficult. Many companies tried. Google gave it probably the best run with its absurd Google TV thing with that crazy remote. Remember that? Um, yep, yep. There was like two Google TVs ago. I forget which oh, thing called yeah. Google TV was. Remember that? That was one that um, Eric Schmidt said was going to be in every TV, right? No, that was the second one. This was the one before <laughs> that, I think. Yeah. Anyway, it's a really hard problem, both technically, because how would you even solve that technical problem, and business-wise, because... Everybody whose inter- whose input is going into your omnivorous box does not want people to get their content through your omnivorous box, and they will fight you on it. Like they will make it so your box stops working on purpose because they don't want you to be the middleman. It's like no, they don't want that at all. And so no one ever did make that box. TiVo came the closest because TiVo 
get takes the cable input because of cable card which is the thing that happened when there was a brief moment of semi-sanity in our lawmaking institutions in this country that allowed uh third-party products to accept cable signals with some caveats so that's why i can even use a, a tivo and why i don't have to have a cable box so we could get cable television and record that and then eventually tivo added some fairly grim streaming video clients to their platform so you can watch netflix through your tivo and amazon through your tivo and all and i think there's a plex client i forget anyway not quite omnivorous because you can't watch itunes content through there and you can't watch my blu-ray player through there and you know all sorts of other stuff like that so omnivorous box never came to be enter cavo with two a's and no bar over any of them um this is a set-top box that takes a whole bunch of hdmi inputs and has one output um and it tries to do something like what i described that you have one cavo remote you use that remote and with it, you can see all the video that is available on all the different devices that are plugged into it. And you can watch video from any of them. Any of them. Uh, it is not, I think, really an omnivorous box because one of my requirements for omnivorous box is it provides one interface that doesn't make you have to be aware of where stuff comes from. And one of Cavo's primary interfaces is a series of boxes that say Roku, PS4, Amazon, Apple TV, DirecTV, like when i first saw it i thought this is a glorified hdmi switcher it's like great <laughs> all your hdmi things go into one box and then out of that box it connects to your television and then when you turn it on with the one remote you can pick which thing you want to do and then you just get the interface to that thing but that's not quite how it works we'll link in the show notes to this video from the verge which is very long kind of boring but just scrub through it until you see them start actually using the device uh of the creators of this thing talking to who are they talking to Walt Mossberg, uh, I only recognize because of his silly beard, and uh, someone else. Um, and they give demos of the product, and it tries to do more than that. It tries to give you an interface to all of the things that are available on all of the devices. It's not particularly pretty to look at, but it will try to say, hey, here are the shows available for you to watch without expressing to you where they are from. Uh, it, it has Amazon Echo integration, so they keep doing this demo of like, you know, watch stranger things and uh you have like a preference list of like when i say watch stranger things and you determine that stranger things is a show that's on netflix and i have three boxes connected that can all do netflix i i want you to prefer to use the apple tv for netflix for whatever reason um so we'll start playing stranger things from netflix through the apple tv if you say watch man in the high castle it will determine that that is only on amazon and you have an amazon streaming thing connected somewhere and so it will start playing it from that for you so the voice control interface is like you know one level up from what each of these devices do individually same thing with the remote the remote you're controlling the cabo box the cabo box is controlling the inputs um i wonder how they're doing the unified interface it doesn't look that great it's mostly just text it's not a particularly rich interface if you were to go to the interface to any of these boxes or services it would look better and have nice pictures and more metadata and stuff um but at least at least they're trying i think this box faces the same challenges as a real omnivorous box would in that the companies that they are sort of trying to insert themselves between you know the customer and these other boxes those boxes aren't going to like that and if they don't intentionally break them they will accidentally break them especially if their means of control involves i mean like are they doing screen scraping are they trying to use apis documented or otherwise how are they even doing this do they have separate metadata somewhere that's like in the cloud so it's not actually uh looking at the content over the hdmi thing so i don't know i don't I don't know how they're doing it it doesn't look that impressive but at least they're giving it uh 
it, uh, you know, giving it the old college try. The most interesting thing about this demo are the things that are probably the least technically cool in that, you know, calling this a glorified HDMI switch is kind of mean, but calling it a glorified receiver, <laughs> less, less mean. Uh, but if, if you, if you have a receiver or any other box that takes a whole bunch of HDMI inputs and sends one output to your television, you know that, uh, strangely, one of the challenges is aside from having a million different remotes and having to switch inputs, um, that's, that's cumbersome. So one of the demos they give is what if someone comes over your house and they don't know how to use the 17 remotes that are on your end table, right? Or even the one Logitech Harmony remote that you have, because that is generally complicated. And the example they, they gave in the demo is like, what if someone comes over your house and they see you have a PlayStation 4 because they see the controller sitting on the end table and they just pick up the PlayStation controller off the end table. Nothing is, you know, they just come into the room, nothing is turned on. They just pick up the PlayStation controller and turn it on. Any reasonably good receiver should be able to notice that, hey, I was sitting here and everything was off, but I noticed that the PlayStation came on and started sending me video output. So I am going to, through CEC or some other thing that's supposed to work but doesn't, turn on your television, switch the, the input to the, you know, switch my input as the receiver or whatever I am to the PS4 thing. And so now merely by pressing the PlayStation on button on the uh, PlayStation controller, there it is on your screen. You don't have to know, oh, if you want to play PlayStation, pick up the receiver remote, switch to input number two, then turn on the TiVo, or then t- then turn on the PlayStation. Make sure you do it in that order. If you want to hear it through the receiver speakers, also turn the receiver on. But if you don't, it'll go through the television, and blah, blah, blah. You know, you don't have to know how to do that. And then if someone comes along and they turn the Roku on, it'll notice, even though the PlayStation 4 is already on, because you just activated the Roku using the roku remote because maybe all you know is the roku remote you don't know what the hell this cabo thing is you don't know the playstation thing you see oh roku remote i know what a roku is and you just turn the roku on the cabo box will see it well even though playstation is on someone just turned the roku on so i'm going to switch to the roku input and let you control it with the roku remote that type of functionality should be in every decent receiver and probably is in a lot of decent receivers but to me that was the most impressive because that's like yes that's how all receivers should work and I'm glad that someone ha- has realized this and tried to build it into a box. So I-, I start off thinking this is a glorified HDMI switcher receiver, and I ended up thinking this is a really good HDMI switcher slash receiver. Um, <laughs> now, now for the bad news. The bad news is it's four hundred dollars. <laughs> All right, and this four hundred dollars does not include any of the boxes that you connect to it, which isn't a problem for me because I already have a million TV boxes. But like the idea is, you buy this box and you and it's like. You get nothing. It's like it's like buying a Synology with no discs in it. It's like, yeah, it's there. It's ready for you to plug things into, but it's no good to you until you plug inputs into it. So $400 and then $100 for every box, depending on what, you know, I guess the Apple ones are expensive. You know, $60 for a Chromecast, $60 for a cheap Roku, $100 for a good one, whatever. Um, but if you already have all those boxes, and maybe if you don't have a receiver, um, oh, and also it's pretty big and it's weird and it's wood. And it's probably not going to be available to consumers until 2018. So all those caveats. Besides all that, it's great. Yeah, they're, they're going to sell like five thousand of them <laughs> sometime this year. You can pick three different kinds of wood, three different kinds of ugly wood to be on top of it. Oh, now that you tell me that, I'm in. <laughs> You're really not doing a great job of selling this, John. I don't. Yeah, I don't think this product is really going anywhere. But I was excited by the idea <laughs> that someone has tackled some of the very basic problems of this terrible, terrible television age we live in, where we all have way too many pucks or other kinds of boxes connected to our televisions and 
very frequently watching any video content involves switching inputs and possibly also switching remotes and all the solutions that try to make that easier are bad in some way including this one but in the absence of a true omnivorous box which can probably never exist for the same reason open doc can probably never exist business reasons on top of technical reasons equals death uh <laughs> Wow. I, I like That's the awesome. fact that someone is trying to push the envelope forward, and I hope somebody buys this company and incorporates their good ideas into their own products. Like TiVo, I assume? No, there. Come on. <laughs> Come on. I just want TiVo to stay in business. They're not buying anybody. Please, TiVo, don't waste your money buying these people. <laughs> wow. Apple could buy them, make their Apple TV better. Mm-hmm. Apple could have made a box like this. Of course, they never would, but like... The type of the type of functionality of just like can we stop people from having to do uh, switch inputs? That would be good. Like, can it just do what I mean? Can it just notice because I turn the PlayStation on? I probably want to play with the PlayStation. Just switch to that input automatically. It's nice. Thanks to our three sponsors this week: Eero, Squarespace, and Pingdom. And we will see you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Cause it was accidental. accidental Oh, it was accidental. accidental John didn't do any research Marco and Casey wouldn't let him Cause it was accidental, accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter You can follow them At C-A-S-E-Y-L ISS, so that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M-E-N-T, Marco Arment, S-I-R-A-C, USA Syracuse, it's accidental. We have an odd note in the show notes. It says, John Smack throws some more RAM. With more in parentheses, too. Yeah. Throws is in, there's a failure. Throws is in, it ejected it. it. It spit it like a loogie across the room. Some kind of exception handling. We've talked about this before. That's why this is, this is a second, the second time this has happened, I think, on the run of ATP. And I think I used the same language last time. The analogy throws. I'm trying to make here, and failing, obviously is when a horse throws a shoe. Do you know that expression? Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, you know, I, I was raised in Ohio where we had lots of horses. No, I what? No, I don't know what that means. A horse throws a shoe. My understanding, I was not raised with horses either. either. Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. Uh, you know, horseshoes, you know, the little metal bendy U-shaped things you put on the, the bottom <laughs> yeah, of the horse's yeah. hooves. I, I know right? that part at least, yeah. And they're oh attached God. somehow with like these weird looking spikes or nails or something. Uh, it's scary and I don't understand it. Anyway... The horse is galloping along. Those little metal U-shaped things are supposed to stay on the bottom of the little feet. But sometimes when they're galloping along, one of them goes flying off the foot. And that's bad because now your horse has lost its shoe and it, it needs it to walk comfortably or whatever the hell horseshoes are for. Um, and it's throwing as in like it could go flying because as the horse is galloping, the shoe goes flying. off. So basically so. while like doing something strenuous like encoding a video, your Mac Pro forcefully ejected one of its <laughs> ram sticks from its slot. That's what I'm hearing. Or not strenuous, as the case may be. So my Mac Pro is very old. The RAM is also very old. Uh, it's 2008 Mac Pro. Now it is a good, solid eight years old, pushing up on nine. I forget when I bought the thing. Um, 
throwing some RAM means I have eight sticks of RAM in there. And every once in a while, one or two of them stop working. And it's like my horse threw a shoe, my Mac Pro threw some RAM. So I came in the other day and tried to wake my Mac Pro from sleep. And the fan spun up, but the screen did not turn on. And the power light on the front of my Mac Pro was blinking in a very concerning way. And uh, unlike later Mac Pros, including even the 2009, but I don't know how far forward they went, my Mac does not have a little set of red LEDs on the banks of dims to tell you which ones are bad. All I knew is that I had a computer with eight dims of RAM on two daughter cards, four on each, that would not boot. Uh, it just wouldn't post, wouldn't do the chime, wouldn't do anything because, you know, there's some bad RAM there. And this has happened before multiple times. I think I brought it up in case he had bad RAM, that I had a OWC RAM in my thing and that Despite the fact that my computer is so many years old, every time it throws it throws a dim, if it's an OWC one that is the problem, I just call them up and they send me a new one. And it would be better if they didn't break, but after eight years, if it throws a dim and I get a new one for free, I still consider that pretty amazing uh, in, in the, <laughs> the age of like, you know, two-year warranties and hard drives or whatever. So I had a fun afternoon of unseating daughter cards removing dims putting them back in in every valid configuration to by process of elimination find the pair of dims because they have to be in pairs find the match pair of dims that don't work and even with the pairs all i can tell you is that one of the two doesn't work i don't know they might both be bad so eventually (laughs) after many many boots and and i'm good at this now many many uh (laughs) exercises of seating and unseating which is actually kind of satisfying with the little clips they have on them and everything and how you shove them in um I eventually did find the pair of dims that was bad. They were OWC dims, and I am they are sending me new ones for free. Nice. So I'm down I'm down either two gigs or four gigs uh, of RAM right now. Still doing okay. Let's see what do I got here. Fourteen gigs of RAM. So I should have eighteen. So I think I'm down four. Okay, dear Apple, if if you are still listening to this somehow for some reason. Please put this computer out of its misery. <laughs> Give John a new Mac Pro to buy so he can finally stop using this ancient one. Please, oh, Apple. The, te- the terror that fills my heart when I think, is this the time that it's just like that it's just dead? Like that the motherboard is dead, you know, that it's just not going to boot, right? Because then I think about, like, I would, have, I would have to buy an iMac or should I just, like, buy the cheapest laptop I can do? What would I do with all my data? I just, it's terrifying. So... What you know, I was afraid I got it down to this point where I was like, maybe it's just not going to boot because I got it down to like just just two dims, you know, the the two dim configuration of the two that I thought were like the newest and most reliable RAM and it still wouldn't boot. And uh, the trick I learned this time is occasionally you also need to do an SMC reset to make it happy. Not <laughs> not oh all God. the time, but occasionally because I was in one RAM configuration and it would not boot. And then I did an SMC reset and it did boot with the same RAM configuration. And so once I learned that trick, then that was the easy way to make sure I was, you know, uh, actually testing the dims. And I eventually did narrow it down and found the two that were bad. So, yeah, so this is what I've got in my, in my thing. Uh, in one bank, I've got two gig, two gig, four gig, four gig. And the other bank, I have one gig, one gig, empty, empty. It's such a motley collection of RAM. Some of it Apple, some of it purchased from OWC in like three different shipments. And some of it replaced <laughs> over time. Yeah. My word. Oh. Can't kill this machine, though. Takes a licking and keeps on ticking. 
Oh God! Please, Apple, please just <laughs> let John replace this, please. This, meanwhile, this is like, is it going to be short, slower than the Apple Watch? But I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Like, so, like, yeah, like by the time the new by the time a new Mac Pro comes out, if it ever does, your Mac Pro is probably going to be slower than every Mac for sale at that time. Oh, um, iOS devices. I think the the iPhone is already faster than it, isn't it? I believe at least single threaded. It passed it. I think two generations ago. Multi threaded. Oh, I think it God. still hasn't. Uh, but it's close. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm gonna watch for the for the watch to start lapping me. But. Yeah, I mean, at least if you limit it just to single threaded performance, it, w- it you're really looking bad at, compared to all the iOS devices. <laughs> yeah, but I have more RAM than the iOS devices, and I have one terabyte of flash storage. So take that iOS. Yeah, but their RAM works all the time. Ooh, sick burn. Well, you don't know that until you've used it for eight years. <laughs> How, how's the RAM doing on that iPhone after eight years? After eight years, the thing won't even turn on when it's not plugged in. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. As someone who's lived through RAM problems recently, that is no fun, and I feel. Do you see how it. much quicker I diagnosed it and dealt with it rather than rather than like pretending it doesn't exist? I guess you can't pretend it exists when your machine doesn't boot, but addressed immediately. Problem well, solved. And also that like uh, OWC wasn't open, like their phone line wasn't open. I always just call them and deal with the nice people there and just read them my serial numbers, and and they're like, okay, we'll send you new RAM. I did it through chat, which it worked fine, like because their phone lines weren't open, but the chat was. But chat, I find infuriating, like customer support chat, because I don't know why it takes so long for there to be a response. Because you're like, hello, my name is blah, blah, blah. How can I help you? And then I paste in my prepared sentence of what my problem is that is formatted in a way (laughs) formatted in a way that i know there will be no follow-up questions like it contains all the information here's here's the problem here's why i think this is the problem how long does it take you to compose that sentence three days Uh, i can do it on the fly it's very easy very concise right but it contains all the information right (laughs) here's here's my problem here's why i know it's my problem putting enough information to let them know they don't need to take me through troubleshooting steps and crap right and here's what i want to happen i want you to send me new ram right like in a nice way but like all the information is there and then you wait literally 10 minutes for the reply and the reply is can you give me the order number or serial number or blah blah which of course i have ready for them but i didn't want to confuse them with in the original message and i paste that in <laughs> 10 more oh minutes gosh. 10 more minutes of that chat window just off to the side to, to the credit of the chat thing in owc it has like a chime that lets you know when they reply because you can't just be sitting there wait like there's not even a typing indicator like just just 10 minutes like are they just chatting with their friends did they go for a coffee break uh they're surely not spending this time typing especially for the first message there was no things for them to be looking up in the system oh the system is slow we're looking up your order they didn't even have my order number at that point i just told them what the situation is bad ram want new ram here's how i know it's bad don't don't ask me to blow the dust out of my socket basically like you know 10 minute reply on that and then so it it just it took a, an incredible amount of time, but during that time, I was like browsing the Reverend, reading, reading Twitter while waiting while waiting for them to reply. Sometimes I forgot that I was still in the middle of the chat. Like you know, it's long when you've forgotten. Like a little boop goes off. I'm like, oh, that's right. I'm a, I'm on a customer support <laughs> chat to get new RAM. So hopefully that will be on the way soon. I'm, I'm surprised at this point you you don't just call them up on the phone and just be like, hey, it's me again. They're like, all right, how big? Two gig? Four gig? Two? All right, right. Just send it out. Yeah. I mean, like, they, if they, because they have this lifetime, or maybe people don't know, don't realize, you buy RAM from OWC, like, if it goes bad, they'll just keep replacing it forever. Like, I think that's how it works. Like, you do have to pay to ship your old RAM back to them, but that's cheap. It's very lightweight, right? So it's a couple bucks to ship old RAM back. It's why, by the way, I save the boxes. I never throw out the boxes. The new RAM comes in. I just, you know, I'll just keep 
I keep getting new RAM forever for this machine, and it's fine with me, right? If it, and it's, I think it's like every every two or three years it throws a dim, uh, and you know I'm, I'm okay with that. It's like Casey's uh, BMW. Every once in a while, you know, sixty thousand miles, the water pump's gonna <sighs> go. Like it's okay. No, it, it would be Thanks, like after John. two years, you just lost two CPUs. Well, the CPUs, yeah, that's that's what I'm always afraid of. But, I mean, RAM, like I, I could just say I'm always afraid that the slots are going to go bad. Like the, but even if that did, I can get by with 14 gigs of RAM instead of 18. Like I'm okay. I've had such <laughs> a motley collection of RAM in this machine, like weird amounts and weird combinations. But as long as I'm as long as I'm in the teens, I'm okay for what I do with this Mac. It's I'm just I'm trying to predict like during which year will you stop using this Mac? <laughs> when it when it dies that will stop me right so if it actually dies what am i going to do but if it doesn't die my current plan is look this is the year wait to wwc if there's still no mac pro if it's an imac pro either way like if there's a mac pro maybe maybe not but if there is no mac pro then i'm getting an imac and if there's an imac pro i'm getting an imac pro so my wife says why don't you just get an imac now it's like i'm resigned to the fact that i'm going to buy something that looks for all the world like a 5k imac and i'm pretty much okay with that having used hers a lot it's like whatever if they're not going to make an Mac pro anymore what the hell can i do the next best thing is the 5k i'll be okay with it but i'm not going to buy it now i have to wait to see at wwdc what the thing is is there going to be another uh, mac pro is there going to be a special imac for pros either called imac pro or not that's when I make my buying decision. But the thing of it is, is you had a new Mac Pro, what was it, 15 years ago now, when, when the trash can came out? You had a new Mac Pro, and you didn't want that one. So what makes you think you're going to suddenly decide that this one's okay? If I had to reconsider, well, the problem with knowing what I know now is I also know about the reliability issues of that one. Like, when it came out, the reason I didn't buy it was like, well, is this doesn't quite suit my needs, like... I don't need that much GPU and the GPUs aren't that great and it's super expensive and so on and so forth. But all our conversations about that were with the expectation that I'll wait for the next Mac Pro, like when they revise it, right? Like, and it wasn't such a crazy assumption. I thought that that would happen. <laughs> I mean, they they even did that for the cheese graters, even though like the, you know, the fake new one for the, this show was founded on, like it was still a revision. It was still like they, they changed some stuff. I, I, none of us, I think could have predicted that like they were literally not, release another version of the machine like ever like just no no for not one year two year three like they just won't do it and that was not in my head so it was like me passing on that mac pro i feel like you know it's the first one like wait for the second revision like kind of like i did with the 5k mac i didn't buy the first one like marco did even though it was a good machine it was like and the second one came out okay this is the one to get it seems like it's you know everything's settled down there's no big problems it's got the p3 screen that's totally what i was expecting to do with the trash can they just never made another one and so you know what can you do you make any uh, progress in your car decision? We heard we had a lot of <laughs> oh. feedback on that. Oh, I love, did we have? Feedback. I love the feedback. Right, can, can I just do this for you, Casey? Please. Casey wants a stick shift <laughs> that was apparently not <laughs> emphasized enough in the past show. In the past eighteen shows and the entire run of neutral, right? It's not he hasn't been keeping it a secret, but people keep forgetting. They keep forgetting, or people say, "I know you said you wanted the stick shift, but have you considered not a stick shift?" Yeah, have yeah. you considered that, Casey? Have you considered not a stick shift? Because I know you said you wanted one, but think about this: not. Oh, you know how that you put it that <laughs> like, way. When you put it that way, I see. So not a stick shift. That's that what you're saying? Not the thing I want. Right. Also, oh a, a pretty close number two on that list was not front wheel drive. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. 
a lot of people are saying, oh, you, should, you don't worry about that. Don't worry about a stick shift. Don't worry about front-wheel drive. You know, I got a perfect front-wheel drive automatic <laughs> front that I love to sell <laughs> Paddle-shifted car for you. That's what you were looking for, right? It seems like that's exactly your criteria. I mean, I that's mean, exactly to, it. They were, they were arguing, you know, they were saying, most of the people were like, you know, some people just plain forgot because I would like, they would go on a whole email about the, 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 the car that you should get. But other people were pitching you. They're saying... Here's why you should consider front-wheel drive. It's not your father's front-wheel drive, yep, blah, blah, blah. Yep. And, I, and I mostly respect those pitches, but maybe they just don't know your uh, stubbornness. Now, would you call that an elevator pitch or an escalator pitch? I call it an email pitch. And I, I think people's <laughs> made some I, – I have to say, though, I have to think a lot of people made good arguments. Like if you were going to try to talk you out of oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. a stick shift or a rear-wheel drive, people had some good arguments based on their actual experiences driving these cars. So I think there was good quality feedback in there, but I'm not sure how much it helped you. My other favorite was everyone in the entire world, I counted, it's true, telling me you should buy a WRX. In fact, in the chat room, as we speak, two different individuals are telling me to buy a Subaru or a WRX. No, nope, I, won't, I won't allow it. No, well, so here's the thing. Like, I tweeted within a day of the show coming out because we, I was already getting inundated by it. Uh, two things. I said, um, you know, number one, I think the WRX isn't cushy enough. Um I, I want something that's a little bit less boy racer. Secondly, this is my past Subaru, and it's a picture of my legacy GT. Now, this was after I sold it, and I think we might have discussed this on the show, but it was after I sold it, and it was di- it literally died in a fire. You know that <laughs> phrase that I love so very much? It died in a friggin' fire. But are that- you attributing that to the car, or is that the owner? Like, I see well, that picture too, but because you didn't own the car, you don't know how that happened. That's true. However, uh, let me remind you that that car smelled of gasoline slash petrol uh, for most of the time that I owned. The wheels it. all stayed on it, though, unlike another car. This is true. <laughs> this is true, which was an improvement. It's a low bar. So, so, so like, yeah. We have Casey gets a car, the wheel falls off. Next car dies in a fire. <laughs> BMW is doing pretty well, all things yeah, considered. It is doing here. Excellent. It's just consuming its engine parts in a hail of metal occasionally. Yeah, the, no big deal, right? What, um, what's no, the common factor here, Casey? Maybe you drive really weirdly. <laughs> I, I, I guess. Uh, I don't know. But uh, I, had a, I had a few people reach out with uh, interesting ideas. Um, I had a handful of people reach out and say the Golf R is just as good as you think it is. Um, I had a handful of people with various degrees of aggression say, stop fighting with this, just lease your damn car, Um, which I think I, I... I understand that, and there, there's probably some truth to it. In fact, Marco, you made a pretty good pitch for it. I, I don't remember if that was on Slack or on Twitter, but regardless, um, leasing would surely fix many, if not all, of these problems. But it creates other problems, which is, you know, I'm just throwing money into a pit. I'm borrowing a car, but you're doing that now. Really for. You're, you're well, fair. You're fair. All, any ownership of a car is throwing money into a pit and only borrowing it. No matter how yeah. you do it, that is the result. It's only a difference of, of like mechanics of how that actually happens and on what time scale and in what pattern. Yeah. And, and like what I like about leasing, which I've said before, I'll just go the, the very quick summary. Um, you know, it is not the absolute least money to spend on a car. Like the, the the least money to spend on a car is to buy a lightly used Honda or Toyota and drive it until it doesn't drive anymore. That is by far the cheapest the cheapest way to own a car. Um, but if you if you're going to go the route of nice cars, and in particular if you're going to go the route of buying new, usually a lease is really nice for that because it is predictable and fixed. 
and you put the risk of market fluctuations, the value of your car, whether it, it ever gets in an accident or anything like that, like you put the risk of all that and the eventual resale value back on the manufacturer. Yeah. And so you have a very predictable, guaranteed, fixed three years of here's what this is going to cost me every year or every month or whatever. And then at the end, it is done. It is over. You don't have to worry about, am I going to lose a lot of resale for this little scratch I have over here or whatever else? Uh, and like, and all, all the maintenance is included. So like, it's just it's a way to just take this weird, like severe up and down, spiky expense pattern of owning a car and just make it flat. Make it flat, but expensive. But financing, ver- financing new versus leasing new. It, it, it's kind of a toss-up. Most it, it depends on the on the incentives and the interest rates of of the current month and and that brand and the configuration you're looking at. Sometimes leasing is actually cheaper because what a lot of the brands will do is they will they will use lease incentives and lease specials to help them reach you know earnings for this quarter at a, at their own expense. Basically, like they're kind of like borrowing against their own future. So you can actually the the best deals in the car industry usually are. Uh, for new cars, at least, usually are lease specials uh, for that reason, that you're kind of like taking advantage of the manufacturer's need to boost their numbers in a certain time span or whatever. But for, that, that's going to be less applicable to the kinds of cars you're looking at, honestly. But anyway, uh, that's why leases are good. They're they're fixed, they're predictable, and they're kind of like, if your usage pattern, like if, if your mileage-driven fits within what a lease can do, which yours does, uh, then it really makes a lot of sense, especially for the kind of cars you are looking at, which are fast cars, sports cars. And, you know, it's one thing to like to lease something more conventional and more like, you know, low key with like a lower key, not as tweaked up engine and not high performance brakes, not high performance parts. You know, that's one thing. But the kind of cars you're looking at, as you know too well now, are very expensive to maintain. That you're going to have that problem with any any way you look at this that still involves you having a soul. So because of that, that's why I think you should just go to, go to leasing because, again, you're, you're losing a bunch of money no matter how you do this. With leasing, at least, it's more compatible with the kind of like high-powered, sporty cars that you're looking at, and it allows it to be predictable. There's no more surprises. And I tell you what, that is a freeing decision. Because like, I've, I've done now every method of owning a car. I have, I have bought used. I've bought new via financing, and I have leased. And leasing is the only one of those that I did more than once. <laughs> and there's a reason for that, because my experience doing the other two were both very poor. When I bought used, I had a maintenance nightmare. When I financed new, I lost a killing on, on uh, resale value, uh, because at one time I had to get a door panel replaced. Not my fault. The car was parked, and somebody backed into my door. And I had to get a door panel replaced, and they saw that when I went to resell it, and they're like, they could tell that it had been repainted from like you know they, they could look at like the edge on the inside and kind of see, oh yeah, this is a repainted panel, uh, even though it looked perfect from the outside. But anyway, yeah, I, I lost like five thousand dollars off the resale price on that car. Like it, it, it was horrible, and it just sunk all. Like it was, it was that that was my accord, and like all the all the calculations I did to like, is this the best value car? That best value was destroyed because of that resale loss. So like everything that that I thought I was doing right was out the window because I had bad luck. Similar to what you're seeing now with your BMW, like everything you thought of your calculation of what you were going to spend on this car 
is being thrown out the window because weird stuff is going wrong and you just happen to have bad luck with the maintenance on this one. That can happen with any car you get, no matter how reliable it is. That's it, This is all to say, like, this is why I like leasing so much. She was with leasing, you get the new car, and yes, it, you're paying what you're paying a cost for a new car, right? That, and that's never going to be cheap, no matter how you do it. But if you're going to get a new or newish car with a lease, you pay every month. You get the car brand new, how the exactly the spec you want. You custom order it exactly what you want. You get every option, every color, whatever you want. Your stick shift. You can get. You, you don't have to wait and find one. You can get exactly what you want. Three years later, you turn it into the dealer and you get something else. And you don't have to worry during that time if you get like a scratch in month six of a lease you don't have to look at that and say a am i gonna have to look at the scratch for the next 10 years and b what is this going to kill my resale value or do i have to like go get this fixed somewhere really expensive because you know what leases have scratch allotments built in you don't have to pay anything unless it's a really huge dent or something like and it's just fine you just turn it back in and they you have a certain allowance and it's just fine like it's it's just so much easier there's there's so much less also like if you're kind of unsure about whether you want like one of the reasons i got a red car this time i'm not sure like having never owned a car that was a bold color before i wasn't sure i would like it and but you know i'm not buying this car for 10 years i'm leasing this car for three years so i can take a bit of a risk same thing with the m5 i wasn't sure if i if i could deal with a rear wheel drive car in a place that has winters and if I was buying a car for 10 years, I'm not sure I would take that risk. But because it was only a lease, I knew that it was, you know, a, a much shorter commitment. And so I, I did it and it worked out great. Now I have my red car. That's working out great. Like, so I, you're able to take more risks with, with the choices you make because it isn't a long-term commitment. And the psychology is so much more relaxed because you know it's just a lease. And the time that you're giving it up is fixed. The value that you're going to get out of it is fixed. What you're paying every month is fixed. And at the end, you just repeat. You just order something else and the process repeats. And you can, you know, every three years, you have a chance to stop doing that if you want to. But, you know, honestly, once you start, it's kind of hard to stop because it's really, really nice. Casey doesn't want a three-year stand with a car. He's looking for a long-term relationship. I mean, to be fair, you can also get four- and five-year leases. I I don't know if anybody really does, but you can. Uh, But every, every choice that you have presented in front of you you're going to have to make some kind of major compromise on what you would ideally want right no matter what choice you have in front of you you have to compromise on something in in a, you, have, you have to make like one big compromise to avoid making a whole bunch of other smaller ones if you choose leasing as that compromise to make because i know you, you know you you object to leasing seems like mostly a moral standpoint you know it's it's less about like whether you could afford it or not and more that you just don't like the idea of it if you can compromise on that, everything else you can get exactly what you want. Yeah, sort of. I mean, I guess that's true. But the only the only things that that would give me access to really is BMWs, and I could just buy a used one or a Cadillac, and I can. I, I don't think I want a Cadillac, so I won't. I won't let you get the Cadillac. Well, I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't know what... Re- I, leasing doesn't really open any doors, I don't think, that aren't already in front of me. It just solves the maintenance problem because th- everything will be... Un- I will forever be under warranty. What's next, Marco? Are you going to recommend a three-year marriage? Yeah. <laughs> that's, what you, so, that's what you're suggesting to, to no. us car owners. That's right. We'll have three-year marriages and five-year marriages. It's great. 
try it. It's like, no, that's not, you don't understand the relationship between a man and his car. No, you, and John, you are doing <laughs> one of my other recommended plans. Not not quite. Like I would recommend if you're going to do like the maximized value plan, I would recommend buying a, a, a just off lease Toyota or Honda and then owning that into the ground. You're doing it. All, you're doing almost that, which is buy a new Honda and own it into the ground. Like that is also a totally valid way to do it. You know why I can't do the leases for two reasons. One, try finding a stick shift Honda card to lease. It's hard enough to find someone who will sell you one from the factory. They do not exist. Uh, and two, I like having a new car. I like having a brand new car. Brand new cars are awesome. And you get that with a lease too, right? Yeah. Brand spanking new. That's one of the great things in life is getting a new car. I would never forgo that for like a one-year-old. I will eat the 5K that I – in depreciation. That's very surprising to me. Who doesn't like a new car? Come on. I'm, I love a new car. <laughs> but so my perfect scenario, like if I could just invent the perfect scenario, I would get like a one- or two-year-old car that was exactly the build I wanted. <laughs> that was and- used by Tiff Armand. Driven 500 miles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's true. And, and that's and to, truth be told, that was my BMW. Now, it had been driven many, many miles, but but the only way those miles could have been accrued in the time in, in which the first owner had it was on the highway. Um, and so on paper, my, my car was perfect. It was a relatively decent deal. <laughs> it turns out he was a mailman. <laughs> well, I think my understanding was he was actually an insurance agent. Stop and but, go, stop and go. That's yeah. why the Vano system blows up. It. Yeah, it could be. But no, my understanding was he was an insurance like agent or something like that. But we will probably, Marco will probably and justifiably cut this from the show. But as you guys were talking, I went to Auto Trader and quickly amassed the list of makes that are reasonably easily available to me in the United States. And I will run through them alphabetically. So everyone will know the options in front of me. And the answer is that there are almost none acura acura does not believe in a stick shift anymore alpha volvo no sticks done any other questions Uh, a couple other quick notes uh first of all porsche is theoretically an option which i had forgotten but a it's way too expensive b have you seen the panamera it's freaking hideous there's there's no there's no four-door sticks the panamera doesn't come in stick does it Ah, uh, you know, now that you say that, you're probably right. Secondly, uh, Inkat, and, and this individual is not the only person who has said this, but, oh, you're too picky. Well, f*** you. This is what I want. I mean, I don't care. <laughs> this is what I want. I am allowed to be picky if I'm spending between twenty dollars and $80,000. I am allowed to be picky. So, sorry, tough nuggies. Um, I would probably get a used Golf R. And then, as I thought more about it, I thought, you know what? I don't know if it's really even worth just trading this in because why would I spend thirty to forty to if Marco has his way eighty thousand dollars on a new car when I can just continue to feed my car from time to time and just call it a day? And yeah. so what I think I'm going to do is just suck it up and deal with the fact that my car is always going to be in the shop. Casey's BMW is my Mac Pro. Yeah, actually, you're right. And that makes me absolutely sick. We should just uh, go to OWC, see if they can send you a new water pump. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> just every time it dies, they'll just send you another one. You just have to pay to ship the old one back. It's fine. Uh, no big deal. I, I was morally offended last week, but as I got thinking about it, and as I, I actually got a couple of offers um, of one person I know and one like friend of a listener that had said, um, oh, I'm getting an M2 soon, and I have a Golf R that I'm looking to unload. And we started lightly negotiating on it. And then I thought to myself, I don't know about this. Like, I haven't told this individual one way or the other, but my current thinking sitting here now is why would I throw 
thirty to forty thousand dollars at a problem that's happening every few months for one thousand dollars. Like that doesn't really fix my problem. For the privilege of driving around in a Volkswagen Rabbit. Right. All I'm doing is being a petulant child at that point. If you didn't already have a really nice 335, like if you were right, starting exactly. from nothing, that'd be another story. But because you already have something that is good, yes, it is a maintenance headache. But if you're looking at pure value for the money, maintaining a BMW is going to hurt your soul, but it will actually be cheaper. Right. And that's the thing is that my, my soul is damaged, but I know my wallet is thanking me. The problem with the Golf R, like aside from the whole rabbit thing, the, I, there are two critical problems with the Golf R. Number one, the trunk really isn't that big with the seats up. It's not tiny, but it's not that big. Uh, secondly, and this is going to sound silly, and this is just getting even deeper into the, oh, you're so freaking picky, which is accurate. <laughs> this conversation sounds silly. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, there's no sunroof. And I freaking love sunroofs. I love them. I use mine constantly, even at temperatures where I probably shouldn't. And the Golf R, unavailable with a sunroof. Yeah, that that honestly changes a car dramatically. Like, what, if, you yeah. were, if you're a sunroof person, I am too, so I understand. If you're a sunroof person and you don't have one, it matters a lot. Yeah. So, in summary, the, so what I'm backing myself into is... Even the Golf R, which is very close on paper, has the small issue of trunk and the medium-sized issue of sunroof. The ATS, or ATS-V is probably what I'd want. It's too damn expensive. The Focus, like I said, it's either front-wheel drive or all-wheel drive, and I look like I am 18. The Chevy SS is really the rightest answer, except the infotainment would murder me, and now they're not making them anymore. Um... And so really the problem I have is that either I need to drive an A4 and realize it's not that bad, or I just suck it up because BMW is the only manufacturer. Like I've backed myself back into BMW and all this whole endeavor was to get myself away from BMW. And now I've just backed myself into the only option I really got is BMW. Look, sometimes you get it right the first time. Yeah. Thank God I did with Aaron. Everything else I'm not so sure. <laughs> yeah. Except, uh, except for, for on the car front, maybe not the color. What do you think lasts longer, your car or John's Mac Pro? My car, but not by a lot. You got a long way to go to catch up to mine. You've only had that thing for a couple of years. No, you're saying. I think Marco's saying what's getting replaced first. Yeah. Oh, um, my Mac Pro because this 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 yeah, summer I'm getting something new, whether this thing breaks or not. Right. <laughs> you say that now. I don't believe that. I'm just gonna get an iMac. Like if, worst case scenario, if they introduce no new Macs. At the end of this year, I will just get an iMac because if they introduce zero new Macs, that means like, well, forget about the Mac Pro, forget about the iMac Pro, whatever, just get a 5K iMac. Like, I can take a hint. There's probably going to be a new 5K iMac like in a few weeks. I'm not getting that one. Right, exactly. And so this summer, there's going to be like a four-month-old iMac in the lineup. You're not going to buy a four-month-old iMac. No, they're going to do something at WWC, even if the something is not introducing a Mac Pro. That will be a (laughs) signal to be like... Guess what? It's not going to happen, so just give it up. I'll be like, okay. I, I think, you know, based on, like, you know, rumors and crap, I think it's very unlikely that we're going to see, like, a new Mac Pro or an iMac Pro this summer. I think it's too soon. Uh, so, what? assuming that the, the summer comes and passes, and it's, you know, July, and there's still no, no new iMac Pro or Mac Pro, are you going to buy the then four-month-old iMac USB-C? 
You say you say four month old like it's so old that I wouldn't buy it, but four month old like that's that's in the in the babyhood of that Mac that IMAX life cycle because it won't be modified again for eighteen months. No, but I'm I'm saying you're going to wait till the next one. I bet you don't even buy the iMac that hasn't even come out yet. All right, I so bet- that, that scenario is conceivable, <laughs> but I still think unlikely. And I'm not going to rule it out because that is something I would do. I will bet that you don't replace your Mac Pro this year. <laughs> I'm I'm ever so slightly leaning on john's side but man is it close man is it close i mean because you got the other thing you have to take into account this thing could break like every time something goes wrong it could be a thing that is like not as easy to replace as ram even if the video card went bad i'm pretty sure it keeps showing that it won't break i think that's very clear (laughs) how are the fans not seized by now i don't understand (laughs) that's a good question do you like blow it out you know it's It's filled with like not just dust but dust that is like like plated on there like it doesn't blow or wipe <laughs> off the dust has become part of the machine oh my god like i have an air sprayer and i blow it and it does nothing i'm like why am i why do i even bother this is now part of the machine 